a golden god! I carried a watermelon. An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> god, I don't know who's weirder, you or me. <laughs> you just put the law in my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart with it. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. There is no day now, only soon. What a lovely singing voice you must have. Pardon my French. Shit! Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Movies for Life. I am one of your co-hosts, Michelle Egan. And I'm Brian Kuyper. So, in light of our last episode of... I have a little bit of an announcement to make. Big news. Big news. <laughs> I don't know if it's really big news to y'all, but it kind of is to me. Um, so yeah, like I said, as we found out um, from our last episode, uh, maybe One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is not a forever favorite as much as I thought it was. I think it was at one time that I knew there was something about it that made me think that, but watching it again, yeah, it definitely had different... Different ideas about it this time. So, uh, you know what? I think, just, I think we can go on record to say that we both like the movie. Yeah. But um, maybe putting it in that upper echelon is not where it belongs anymore. I had a reason at one point, mm-hmm. but uh, I've changed and my thoughts have changed, which I know that's kind of not really what the forever, that kind of goes against the forever favorites title, but I guess things happen. They do. And, you know, it's... I'm, I think my top two are pretty safe, but um, I was honestly <laughs> worried that Magnolia would fall out of mine because I hadn't seen it in so long, but that didn't turn out to be the case. It turned out to be like, maybe I need to put it at the top of the list, <laughs> frankly, because right? I loved it so much. But um, yeah, well, you know, people change. People have different attitudes about life, different life experiences and all sorts of things that just change perspectives. So I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with changing it. But we got to know we got to (laughs) know what what belongs on the list for you now. What what are you putting in this place? Well, if you know anything about me from things that I've said online or you've been paying attention to things that I've said on previous episodes about what I consider the greatest movie of all time. I think Ghostbusters. I'm... No, <laughs> no, no. How dare you? I think it's pretty obvious that uh, Tremors is going to have to be one of my new forever favorites. It really should have been there to begin with, you know, now that I think about it. You know, the way you talked about Tremors on that episode, I was like, why is this not in your forever favorites? <laughs> I know, right? I think it was, maybe it was one of those things where I was kind of feeling like it's not good enough in a way to be a forever favorite but fuck that or not as I love prestige it. or yeah. something which yeah is, which is dumb which is so dumb anyway fuck it i love that movie it is one of my favorite forever favorites it always has been I, yeah like i said i don't know why it wasn't on there to begin with but it is now and you are representing with the I'm t-shirt today um which wonderful. is just fantastic i love this shirt <laughs> i'm wearing a star wars shirt so <laughs> <laughs> all right so what have we got going on today? Ooh, today we're returning to the well, as it were. You know, we're returning to one of our favorite recurring topics, which is uh, films about filmmaking. And these films are uh, they're sort of about filmmaking, but they're more about watching 
movies and the experience, uh, two different types of experiences uh, with watching movies, one in a theater, one in a drive-in. Uh, there's a screening room in one. There's all sorts of things. So this is this is uh, fun, old-fashioned um Sort of, I guess both of them were kind of old school experiences of going to the oh, movies. Oh, totally, yeah. But I have fond memories of both kinds of experiences in my life. Um, the non-multiplex movie theater and also the drive-in. So it'll be fun to, to dive I've only to been dive to a drive-in once bit. in my life. Oh, yeah? I actually remember the movies that I saw at the drive-in as a kid. Uh, I was very young, so it'll be kind of fun to maybe maybe jump into that a little bit, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, so we're changing things up again with the order, but oh, it also geez. makes sense for this one. It's more, it's chronological. Uh-huh. Yes, because usually we do your movie first. <laughs> That's just kind of mm-hmm. how it worked out, but it worked out a little bit better for this one to do mine first, which is Peter Bogdanovich's uh, debut feature film. Oh. Targets from 1968. My movie actually takes place before Targets takes place, uh, which is kind of weird, though it was made many years later, and that is Joe Dante's Matinee. Yay! From 1993. Love that movie. Oh, yeah. These are both movies that, you know, I return to a lot. They, I was surprised watching them as sort of a double feature this week. Uh, how similar they are in structure. They are so similar. I was really surprised to find that. Yeah. I just thought they had the connection of like, because I remember the whole thing. I was like, okay, yeah, the, the big climax at both movies happens at the movies, basically. Mm-hmm. But there's so much more like before that that really lined up too. Yeah. And, you know, I like sort of this idea of a, a real world horror that sort of mm-hmm. exists out there that is happening at the same time as this this uh, fake horror, this movie horror that's going on. And yeah, great central performances from, you know, John Goodman and Boris Karloff. There's just a lot going on in these that I think is, is really great to pair together. So let's get into it. Start with targets. What I find interesting about targets too, is the movie is really compelling but the story of how the movie was made. Oh my gosh. Prob- I mean, you could make a movie out of how About this movie was made. How it came yeah. to be. Because um, just a quick overview of it, I guess. Um, I was going to do it. You were going to do it. You do it. No, I don't, I don't know if I do could it. do it as well. <laughs> I don't actually have anything prepared. I just uh, have talked about this and written about this. So um, if you if you have something prepared i'd love to hear oh no just the the whole story of how it came to be was that um peter bogdanovich um, came to la to uh i guess work in movies met up with roger corman he said at a movie theater i think and he um corman approached him because it's like i said it's a really interesting situation the the pitch i guess quote-unquote pitch that he gave him for a movie that he wanted him to make was that um he had Boris Karloff, he said Boris Karloff owed him two days of filming. And he already had this footage from this movie called The Terror. So he told... Which, have um, you ever seen The Terror? No, I haven't. Oh, it's awful. Is it? It's so bad. <laughs> it is, um, it's sort of unofficially part of the Poe cycle. It's sort of off from that. 
but it went through it exchanged hands through so many directors even jack nicholson directed some of it really all sorts of things yeah it's it's just kind of a disaster of a movie it didn't really look like my thing no it's 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 not great (laughs) i haven't seen it in a long time so if there are any terror fans out there you know you can push back and i welcome it but from my memory is it was not good (laughs) (laughs) anyway go ahead yeah so corman told bogdanovich okay shoot about 20 minutes worth of stuff you know with karloff and then use like 20 minutes worth of footage from the terror and then you know find some other actors and shoot you know about an hour ish of stuff with them that's basically all he told him to do and like Mm -hmm. boom you'll have a new boris karloff movie i think he probably expected him to make sort of victorian drama that was probably extension of of this these scenes from the terror bogdanovich was just i just can't do that i just can't do that that would be awful (laughs) so So he said like the initial like kind of seeds for the idea for the movie came out of a joke he said Mm -hmm. like oh we'll just start with We'll play the terror and then we'll show that we're actually in a screening room and Karloff will be sitting there and he'll say like, oh, that was a terrible movie. And he's he'll talk about how he wants to retire from acting. But I think that was he says it was a joke, but it's so smart with where the story ended up going and like what this movie essentially means what it mm-hmm. came to be, because um, he also had an idea from somebody else like when he was writing at Esquire he said that um, I think the editor at Esquire told him to write a movie about Charles Whitman yeah so he and his wife at the time Polly Platt they wrote the uh, so many different people like involved with this is crazy like they they came up with the story Bogdanovich wrote the screenplay and then he went to his friend Sam Fuller which I love this 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 is amazing just amazing to me I love this element he gave him he gave Sam Fuller the script to read and they you know collaborate for a bit they talked it out and he said Sam Fuller basically rewrote the whole thing but Mm -hmm. told told him not to give him credit screenplay credit on the movie because then it would be seen as a sam fuller movie maybe and not his not bogdanovich's which is amazing what a cool dude for him to be so generous is really is really cool and you know bogdanovich had made all these great relationships with these old-time great directors you know Mm -hmm. he was very good friends with orson welles Orson Welles lived with him for a while. Oh, really? Yeah, all sorts of things. Um, he he knew John Ford. He knew Alfred Hitchcock and all these people. And just had these wonderful relationships with them and really could get them to open up about filmmaking and about, and about who they really were. Uh, he had a real good way with them. And I, I like... I have a book um, called This is Orson Welles that was written by Bogdanovich. And it's essentially a series of conversations between Welles and Bogdanovich. And it's very frank. It's very, I mean, Orson Welles does not always come across as as a nice guy in this. You know. Um, and I've seen the stuff people always, post on Twitter. Yeah. Like all the, like, of Orson Welles, like, talking shit on other directors. Is that oh, kind of what it totally. is? totally. Yeah, there's, there's I really want to read that. that. There's a really good podcast series called The Plot Thickens uh, through TCM. It's a TCM podcast. It was hosted by Ben Mankiewicz. The first season is all about uh, is all about Peter Bogdanovich. And there's a great section on this, but you know, 
there are some directors that Bogdanovich didn't get along so well with, you know, like when he f- had his his first big failure with, I can't remember which one, Billy Wilder said, oh, look how this, um, <laughs> this great so-called director has had his failure. And, it's, and, and um, then they cut to a current interview with Peter Bogdanovich where he says, what a prick. <laughs> it's just like, and though just the disdain that he that he seems to have, and it was just it was just like wow. So you know, everyone's got a Hollywood story, I guess. But um, yeah. this is a really amazing one. I subtitled targets when I initially made my notes on it. Was Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt make lemonade? Mm-hmm. Um, because let's face it, the terror and Corman's instructions are a big-ass no lemon. It's like, They're what? terrible. Yeah. It, yeah. And so um, so anyway, I, I've, I've derailed us. So, <laughs> so help us get back on track here. No, okay. So he basically, like we said, he used those initial ideas of um, Karloff as kind of this aging horror icon and also the story of Charles Whitman to tell like this parallel story thing going on between these two characters that seemingly don't really have anything to do with each other and then they just kind of converge at the end but at the same time they have almost everything to do with each other which i think is really this oh my god i don't even know where to go because this movie is like just so interesting for what it is and also like what it represents in terms of Mm -hmm. the horror genre oh yeah Oh, this is this is huge. I mean, honestly, I think if this movie had made more money when it first came out, it would have been it's would be discussed along the same because it came out the same year as Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead. And those movies are absolutely seismic shifts in horror. And so is this one. I don't know. Changes. And this one is too. This one is too. It's just that um, because it didn't make a lot of money, it it sort of became a cult film. Um, But I'm so glad that it has sort of grown over time. Um, There are reasons why it sort of got pushed underground, um, unfortunately, when it came out uh, that we can get into later. But But it's so interesting how it's basically explaining those seismic shifts that happened in the genre in like the perfect way. And it's a great transition movie. Night of the Living Dead and uh, Rosemary's Baby just are just there you're in the new you're in the new horror this one is saying and they're still kind of supernatural yeah they are they are and this one is like you're 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 doing the bridge here you're doing a bridge from the old horror to the new with Mm -hmm. having Karloff uh in the middle of this and the thing is there's so many great uh like transitional shots in this movie that sort of connect the Karloff story to the story of Bobby and mm-hmm. real quick should we mention it so if you don't know who Charles Whitman was yeah <laughs> Charles Whitman in August 1st of 1966 he climbed to the 28th floor observation deck of the tower at, of the clock tower at the uh, University of Texas in Austin and killed 11 people randomly shooting at them yep. uh, he wounded uh, 31. Yeah, and it was just, and there was actually someone who died of his wounds of complications uh, yeah, of it, I like, read that. like many years later, like thirty years later. I think. Yes, it was, yeah. Like so that. he technically killed that eleventh person, you know, um, like thirty years later. Yeah. Um, which is 
wild. And earlier, but he was seen b- b- earlier before that. He killed his wife and his mother. Yep, and you know, and he killed three people inside the university tower. Um, he killed his wife and mother while they were in their beds. But he was always seen as just sort of this quote-unquote all-American boy. I mean, he had been a Marine. If you are a fan of Full Metal Jacket, there's a discussion of, you know, Charles Whitman learned how to shoot in the Marines and it's sort of this <laughs> this moment. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's who Charles Whitman is. It's a frightening kind of story. It's one of those, yeah. it's one of those first stories that you hear about of sort of the mass killing, um, the mass shooting. And this is not my recommendation, though. This is one that I thought about. There's a film about it called The Tower that came out. Uh, It is a very hard watch. It's done with a lot of it is done with like rotoscope animation, but it's also intercut with like modern interviews and stuff. And it's pretty gut wrenching. So that's just Charles Whitman. Uh, Yeah. So this character, um, Bobby Thompson, is very much based on on Charles Whitman. Like the story is story of what happens in the movie is pretty much what he did to an extent. Maybe we should just go back to the beginning though. And then we'll get into yeah. all that other stuff. Cause the movie essentially does open with that joke. So they're showing, you see a little bit of the chair, which is you can, you've seen the movie so you can describe it better, but it's, it is one of those old school type of horror movies. That was it's a Roger Corman film. You know, it's a Roger Corman Gothic. Um, yeah. That is, Done on an extraordinarily low budget. Um, Boris Karloff is, was, you know, quite elderly when he made that film, uh, The Terror, as well. And it's funny because, you know, like Dick Miller shows up in that and you see Jack oh, really? Nicholson in it and stuff like that uh, in that opening sequence even. And he just stops the movie, you know, and there's Boris Karloff as Byron Orlock, which is his character's mm-hmm. name in this. He says... Name. It's a great name. <laughs> and says, Sammy, I think that's the worst picture we've ever made. <laughs> or something like that. You know, he's just, he looks sorely disappointed at this film. And, you know, he decides that, yes, he is going to retire. And one of the things that's, that is sometimes, and Peter Bogdanovich has gone a long way to try and say this is not, this is a version of Boris Karloff, but this is not Boris Karloff. Yeah, yeah. He didn't his, feel this way. His attitude was actually more like, I am going to keep working until I cannot work anymore. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, he was always very uh, grateful for the opportunities that he had. Yes, he was typecast. He didn't always get the most, especially later in life, did not get the most, the kinds of roles he really would have liked probably to do. Um, but he was very grateful and he was not bitter about his typecasting. He was quite genial all through life. Um, by all accounts, just a wonderful person to work with. So Byron Orlock is is a bitter old man, and Boris Karloff was not, from the sounds of it. But you can kind of see where Byron Orlock would be coming from in terms of his feelings. Oh, certainly. I would bitter old man is not really the word for no, it. No, I don't think he's bitter. He's 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 like, I'm 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 good. I'm done. This isn't interesting anymore. He's seeing the changes in the world and how it doesn't really match up to the movies that he's made before and what he represents to people, basically. He says throughout the movie, like, people aren't scared of people like me anymore. Right. They're scared of real things, which is what was happening in the world and which was happening in, in movies at the time, which is why this movie is so freaking brilliant that it yeah. 
just taps so into that. Uh, but also in this scene, this is, um, like we said, Sammy Michaels, which is a reference to Sam Fuller. It as is. I, Peter Bogdanovich says, because his name is Samuel Michael Fuller, uh-huh. um, is actually played by Peter Bogdanovich. Who's really who, good. Um, who's also really hot, because I have to say that. <laughs> he is a handsome young man. Just say he's hot, right? Okay, he's hot. <laughs> so you're the thirsty buy in the room. I'm. I'm yes, yes I am. I'm, I'm, I just think, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> well, I can't, I have to have an episode where I say someone's hot. Apparently it's my thing. No, we'll that's just good. Go with I'm, it. I'm, 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 it would not be an episode of Movies <laughs> for Life without it. And I'm, I'm happy that, <laughs> I'm happy to have that be one of our trends. <laughs> <laughs> so Sammy, um, he had made this movie with Orlockett, but he also says that he's got another script that he's written for him that's, I wish we knew more about what this movie was that he had written for him because he says it's very different. He says it's a new direction for him, which I have a theory about it. Oh, really? I have a, I have a theory. I have a theory that the script he has written is Targets. Kind of right. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, he's pitching to him. It's like this is because of some of the words he says is that hotel scene is one of my favorites, but this is a little later in the movie. But where he just says. Uh, you know, it just plays like he's pitching the film we're watching to Karloff. Yeah. It's like, this would be something for you that would, you know, you wouldn't be a painted monster in this. It would be, you know, you doing something really different and interesting and, and new and and people would love it. And, you know, it's like, he says, well, I don't want to do it. I'm retiring. And he says, well, all right. If I was old, he says, if I was old enough, I would play the part. He says, all right, I'm going to go offer it to Vincent Price. Which is one of my favorite lines. <laughs> That's one of my favorite moments. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Um, so also, but also in the scene, we meet Jenny, uh, who I love. Jenny uh, is Orlock's secretary. Jenny is just beautiful. I, I I am just enamored with her throughout this movie. She's gorgeous. She's just gorgeous, and she's so. And I I love that she. Yeah, she's she's an assistant or a secretary, whatever. But she is um, she's kind of in control yeah, <laughs> of a lot of things too. She's uh, she's very aware of of what she needs to do to get Orlock to do what he should do. Yes, yeah. But they have a great relationship, and I love watching that. They do, they do, and she's teaching him Chinese, and I love and, that. Yeah, which you is don't nice. get to see any of that, but mm-hmm. when he's just like, "What about my Chinese lessons for the day?" So you know that they have this great relationship between the yeah. two of them. That's so cute. Okay, so as Byron kind of retires, and Sammy and this the producer, I think he's the producer, uh, Marshall, yeah. trying to like. Talk him back into coming. And I like his line as um, Sammy goes to see him outside. Orlock says, the world belongs to the young. Let them have it. It's one of my favorite lines um, that Karloff that. ever uttered. The way he says it is not bitter, though. He says it. It's just no. like, you know, I'm. It, it's time for me to give. Times are moving. Times yeah, are changing. It's time... Times they are changing, you know. Right. Yeah. It's time for me to pass this on to the next generation. And I'm OK with that. You know, it's time for me yeah. to just go and, and be home back in England and enjoy my remaining days. Yeah. Instead of struggling to remain relevant when I'm not. Yeah, exactly. But then they kind of flip that a little bit on its mm-hmm. head in a way, because in this scene, we have one of those transitions you were talking I about. I love this, where they... Oh, where Orlock is standing outside, and then 
all of a sudden one of the shots is of his head basically in the crosshairs of a gun. Yeah. And we find out that just across the street is young Bobby Thompson. I don't know how old he's supposed to be. This movie is pretty young. I, I would say early 20s Early at least. 20s. Yeah. 20, at least. 21, 22 years old. Uh, he seems he's quite young. Uh, he's played by uh, Tim O'Kelly, who didn't really do other stuff. He's an actor in one film on Letterboxd here. Really? And it's Targets. And he's really good. He's good. I mean, for someone who sort of was a non-actor, he looks, he has sort of movie star good looks, you know, leading man good mm-hmm. looks. And he's scary as hell in this movie. He's so creepy. Oh. Yeah. So he's across the street at the same time that Orlock is out here talking and he is buying a gun, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, this whole movie, to me, honestly, this whole movie is, is kind of traumatic to watch. Yeah. In the times that we're living in now, just seeing how how easy it is for him to just get a gun and how it's just like a normal everyday action. Like if he's buying a pack of gum. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously it's was it's still fairly easy to buy a gun now. But, oh, I sure. mean, but yeah. back in 1968, it was whatever <laughs> you know I, you know there were no waiting periods there were no um, mm-hmm. background checks and things like that but what we have here is also the gun shop owner says you know hey you've got an honest face what does that mean yeah exactly it's, what does that it's mean it's just scary and especially chilling when he after he leaves the shop oh, yeah. he goes to his car he opens the trunk to put in his new rifle that he's bought and in the trunk is just, it's perfect, it's so creepy looking. It's just perfectly laid out, like, so many guns. There's, like, at least a dozen guns yeah. that are just you know, laying there. Do you know what trunk, it reminds like, perfectly, perfectly laid out, uh-huh. like, he's just arranged them just the right way, you know? It looks like the way the gun seller, that the guy that sells the guns to Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver lays, yeah. lays out the guns on, on the bed. It looks so much like that to me. It's almost like this this that altar shot, you know, that we talked about with Taxi Driver where you're looking mm-hmm. down on the elements on the altar and there's just all these guns perfectly laid out in, inside the trunk. And it's just, like, chilling. And the thing is, you know, this is not an inner city movie this is the suburbs mostly this is Reseda which is you know sort of a, a nice little cute suburb of LA you know so when he drives home you know it's yeah. it's to this little quaint little house you know yeah with it turns and out he lives with his parents well I like this the sequence of him actually driving home mm-hmm. it's like nothing really happens but he's he's driving home and you see um he drives by the Rusita drive-in. You see the sign that um, Byron Arlock is going to make a personal appearance yep. there at the showing of the movie The Terror. And But he also, it's just it's so creepy when you know, when you've seen the movie before, you know what's going to happen. He's just driving on the freeway and he just looks at those Chevron storage tanks. I know. It really and it's gives, like, it gives, it gives a sense of, of foreshadowing but only if you've seen the movie right you know and it gives it a sense of space you know you you know where everything is in relation yeah. to where he lives and kind of in relation to where byron orlock and you know hollywood is too so mm-hmm. it's sort of the real world and the fantasy world if you will sort of in relation to each other and how it all lays out. It gives a great sense of space. I think Bogdanovich does a really good job setting that just so you know where everything is. 
Um, so then we spend a little bit more time with Bobby, some really important time. I think even though you don't get to learn as much about him as you would like to, to have like a, a satisfying, you know, thought about him, like about what happens later on in the movie. But it's interesting to watch um, when he comes home, first of all, um, when he walks in the door. It's, I thought it was so cool. I like freaked out. You can hear on the TV there is an advertisement that there's going to be, they're going to show anatomy of a murder. Yeah. I loved that. I just remember hearing, I was like, you're saying, uh, like, James Stewart and Lee Rimmick and Ben Gazzara. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Are they talking about anatomy of a murder? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> well, and that comes to, you know, Bogdanovich and Sammy's um, reverence for old Hollywood. Sure. In a sense saying, you know, we are going in new directions with movies and that's good, but there is value in, in the past too. In the it's house- also kind of interesting too, what you can hear- Um, throughout the movie really is what you can hear like lines from the movie that you can hear in the background Mm -hmm. because specifically in this advertisement for anatomy of a murder jimmy stewart has his line about premeditated murder oh yeah i don't know i thought that was a little weird connection there uh but this yeah this scene is is super interesting because he's come home bobby lives which is kind of an awkward situation in a way to me. He lives with his parents and his wife. Which was true of Charles Whitman. Yeah. But the, yeah, but this scene, he's just kind of slowly walking around the living room and looking at all the pictures on the wall. And there's like a painting of him and his family. And there's Isn't a picture a, of him a and his wife. Painting? It's like, yeah, it looks like it, it looks like he made it himself. You know, it's so <laughs> it's just sort of a horrible portrait. <laughs> It kind of is, but yeah, this the scene is still really chilling because, you know, he obviously lives there. He knows all this stuff. He's seen all this stuff before, but the way he's taking it all in, ta- taking it all in, yeah, and and looking at all these pictures of his family that he's, as you'll find out, he's planning to kill, mm-hmm. is yeah, that's hard. <laughs> well, and there another thing that I realize, you know, there are guns just everywhere in this house. I mean, it's yes. like decorations on the walls. As I recall, there's a picture of him and his dad, you know, like on a hunting so. hunting trip, you know, both of them holding rifles. But there's nothing <clears throat> in these scenes with Bobby and his family. There's no nothing to indicate what's to come. There's it's a very pretty much a happy normal family. They're just I think it's a little bit of an awkward situation, like I said, to be living with your parents, you know, with your wife. But sometimes, you know, you have to do that. But they seem they have a little routine together and there's no animosity in the family. There's no fighting. There's like there's nothing like that. They're just living their lives. Yes, that whole um, I think it's this sequence where they have dinner together. It's like, hey, look who I saw today. I saw Byron Orlock, you know, and it's just like this boring family dinner. um, You know, they say grace beforehand and then they eat and, you know, it's just there's nothing to indicate at this point, at least anyway, that there's anything askew. I mean, we do know, obviously, what's in his trunk, though. I mean, we know going in what that there's some there's something off about him for sure. So it's it's really fascinating. Then we have the sort of has this whole thing where the target practice scene with his father. Yes. That's (laughs) That's <laughs> wild because, I mean, they're just out there. They're just shooting. Obviously, they've done this a lot. Yeah, it's like their father-son thing. Yeah, it's a bonding do. thing. Which he calls his dad sir. Yeah. He's very, like, respectful. He's not, like, a bad dad or anything. Even, like, yeah. You always, like, want to put the 
the blame on no it's horrible you always want to you want an explanation yeah you know for something like this and he's just it's so weird that you don't get in this he's just got these thoughts which you can see in this scene when he um his dad they shot all the targets down his dad is going down to to put them back up again and he just he picks up the rifle and he's pointing it right at his father with his finger on the trigger yeah like about about to do it but he, there, there's like dad no... rightfully yells at him saying you know what sure, are you doing there's... you know <laughs> sure but there's like there's no look on his face there's nothing no. for why he's doing this i don't think he like that's the scary thing uh, he doesn't even really know why he's doing any of this why he's even thinking any of this and that's the thing you know he tries to discuss his thoughts with his wife while mm-hmm. she's getting ready for work and this is not it hear me on this i'm not trying to blame the wife for not listening that's not the point but part of it is like if she had said just stopped maybe and said you look like you need to talk what's Mm -hmm. going on maybe she would have been able to say all right we need to get you talking we need to get you out of here we need to check you in somewhere to get this figured out i mean who knows but there's there's not that's not it's not her fault you can't think yeah no i mean how many times do we have conversations where it's like i i just can't right now you know i've I've gotta i i wish i could talk but i i can't i gotta go to work or i gotta do this or that you know that's normal life so i mean there's i'm in no way blaming her (laughs) at all (laughs) um but he does clearly need to talk to somebody and he's at a point where he seems to want to talk to somebody because what he says in this scene he doesn't even really know how to express it i think is is the main problem because he says i don't know what's happening to me i get funny ideas is what he says which she doesn't understand obviously what that means or how serious that means and then but he also says like you don't think i can do anything do you right which is kind of an interesting line from him kind of feels like a a challenge yeah i don't know i think it brings in this idea you know also of male repression of emotions and thoughts Mm -hmm. you know you're supposed to be the gary cooper strong silent type you're not supposed to express that you're having struggles and those in fact are compounding his issues the fact that he's unable to express it because no one expresses it you know his father doesn't express it either you know here you go into life with you know sort of the role models you're given i think to some extent and his father is you know that gary cooper type you know that builder era great quote-unquote greatest generation you know world war ii great depression era parent where you just put your head down and you do what you got to do and you don't talk about it. And so I think there's a certain sense of the generational struggle of trying to break free of that. And that still goes on now. I remember as a kid, you know, being taught in school, you know, guys need to, or in youth group or wherever, you know, guys need to open up more. They need to express more and it's okay for men to cry. Actually having to be told that. Because it's still something that is so often suppressed. I think that's a big point um, in this movie, too. Yeah. Kind of more towards the end, which I'll mention. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I think part of this um, sort of repression of being able to discuss these struggles is part of the problem with Bobby. Um, Yeah. I mean... But at the same time, there are a whole lot of people, you know, and uh, and the thing is, you know, so many of these mass shooters, almost all of them 
are men (laughs) who are often sort of these loner types who feel like they are the only ones experiencing this struggle. But there are plenty of people, of men, I'll just use say men uh, for, for for the purposes of this, who are experiencing that struggle and sort of that repression of emotion who don't go out and, you know, shoot people on yes. the freeway. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so again, it's, it's sort of like taxi driver in that sense, you know, it's, it's tr- attempting to understand someone like Travis Bickle or Bobby without condoning what they do. Um, but yeah. I think this movie does less to really understand what Bobby's motives are. Cause I think all part of it is it's scarier when there's no motive, <laughs> right? We've heard that in scream. Well, right. Right. And it's um, it could also be that there really isn't any motive. Like yeah. I said, like he doesn't even really understand yeah. th- where this is coming from. And when I was reading about Charles Whitman and I was kind of just reading the Wikipedia page about like um, he had gone to see doctors and, mm-hmm. and stuff the, while I was reading, I was thinking, well, if he's like this normal guy, I was thinking brain tumor. And like, as I kept reading, that's exactly what it was, because that's that's something that happens. It could just be something as another thing that comes up in this movie could just be fate. Yeah. Be some crazy twist of fate that you know, caught that you have no control over that, unfortunately, does cause people to act out in these ways, which is uh, very scary. Could not yeah. be his fault at all, because like I said, you don't really see anything that could make him be having this thoughts. I mean, we don't really get a lot of time with him, no. but from what we see of Bobby's life, he shouldn't be that way. You know, it's just, exactly. it's not, which is hard to say, but cause you never know, like there could be other like internal struggles, but like except from what we see, there's not much of that going on. And that was true of Charles Whitman, especially at the time, you know, in 1968, I mean, two years after the tragedy, people were like, why? It doesn't make any sense that this, guy who seems to be from a stable family and be living a stable life would just suddenly break and do something like this. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's part of what is carried over into the film is Mm -hmm. that there is no reason that senselessness of it all makes it terrifying, but also makes it real because we don't know the answers just have no clue as to what the motivation really is uh, more often than not I think and sometimes even when you get the motivation it's kind of a bullshit reason it's so bullshit and yeah. it, or it's, it's uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it, there's what I was thinking of a lot going on yeah what I was thinking of a lot with watching this movie was kind of thinking not not that he is this but I was thinking that he's like incels. Yeah. And kind of violence that they have caused because of whatever their warped way of thinking is. Which is what Taxi kind of Driver is really focusing on. It's sort of the yeah. the incel sort of thing. But you don't really see that with mm-hmm. Bobby exactly. <laughs> Which makes it even sort of scarier to me. Yeah. So after after he has that talk with his wife and, and she leaves for work uh, for the evening, he goes outside to his car and he... He gets a gun from the trunk mm-hmm. and just brings it back inside. Yeah. And you don't really know why. And again, just a little, little thing like that. So chilling. So chilling to watch. Yeah. And so it, it but there's a scene, been, there's a scene before that. Yeah. It's been Sorry. cutting back and forth between, you know, uh, Byron yeah. and, 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 uh, and Bobby throughout all this stuff. Cause you know, we have like this little dinner there's scene. a scene before that between uh, Byron and yeah. Oh yeah. He has the dinner scene with, <laughs> I like that guy, Eddie. Yeah. He's so funny. <laughs> I'm going to go and get drunk. <laughs> yeah. There's so much humor 
so much of the movie is diffused by the fact that it's intercut with these really funny scenes with Byron Orlock. Yes. I think those scenes, I mean, they don't serve merely as comic relief, though. They're making a point, but they're also charming and funny and... and yeah. They lighten the mood a they lot. They do. They do. I think <laughs> this would be an irrepressibly dark film without those sequences. Yes. It's still pretty dark. Yeah. But it, yeah, these definitely help. Yeah. I like the scene um, after that with, with Byron and Jenny, because mm-hmm. that's where they kind of mention... That's where you kind of get a little bit more of their relationship. Like I said, they mention like their... Chinese lessons, but she's also like pretty upset with him yeah. about the whole him retiring and not really explaining why. And he's like trying to push her away in this scene, which is like so sad because she looks like so annoyed. She's yeah, uh, I love her her last line to him. It's like I forgot I didn't really remember what exactly what it was, but she's basically saying like, okay, you you want to believe that no one cares about you, but we actually do care about like what's happened, what's happening to you, and mm-hmm. what's going on with you. And that just kind of breaks your heart because yeah. he's, you know, you can see how he's he's trying to push her away to make it easier for himself to kind of oh, step definitely. away from what he's doing in a way. Yeah. And he has that little, as she's leaving, he tries to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I like that scene. I like their their relationship. It's <laughs> it's not, there's nothing. Oh, we should mention, too, that she and Sammy are... Oh yes, are together. <laughs> they're, 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 yeah. they're dating. And uh, Byron seems to be... Because there's not any sort of because so often there there would be you know some sort of sexual tension put in there between the old man and the young woman and there's not oh, that yeah. there at all. No, it's, they're friends. Yeah, they're just yeah. they're just good friends. They like each other genuinely. And he Byron, I think, is sort of trying to play matchmaker a little bit with them. <laughs> Maybe he's trying to, so. he's trying to push it along a little bit between the two of I them. I think so. And I I, I like that a lot. You know. And then comes like the best scene when Sammy comes to Orlock's. This is my favorite room. scene in the movie. This is the best scene of the yeah. movie. <laughs> these two, these two or three scenes in the hotel room are probably yeah. my favorite part. Definitely. Yeah. Something I kind of thought of today too was uh, uh, Sammy and Orlock really reminded me of Edward and Bella Lugosi. Yes. Yeah, like, I I didn't think of that, but you're absolutely right. They really do. I love that, like this younger younger director mm-hmm. and an older actor, mm-hmm. older horror actor, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, I thought that was really cool. But he doesn't I didn't really notice he doesn't that call until Bella Lugosi a cocksucker, but <laughs> 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 you know, it's it's sort of because he okay at the end of that after Jenny leaves, room service arrives. And there's dinner, and it's for two people. Yeah. That's just kind of sad, because, you know, she's left. Because he's pissed off Jenny. Yeah, and so he's he's there alone. He turns on the TV, and it's an old movie of his, The Criminal Code, uh, directed by Howard Hawks, which really was Boris Karloff's first really important part in a movie. He's not the star of it, but he's memorable in the role that he plays. This was a year before Frankenstein. You know, it's kind of fun to bring in sort of this meta quality to the film. Yeah. And that scene is so 90s, but, you know, that that existed. Kind in, of meta, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that existed in literature uh, for quite some time. That was sort of started coming around in the 50s and 60s, you know, in literature. And so for Bogdanovich, who's a well-read guy, to pull that aspect into this movie is really clever and it's not cutesy. It's really has a point. I think it's really really well in the story. Really effective. Yeah. 
so when Sammy comes over, they, they talk about the movie and they talk a little bit more about, you know, why Byron is having the thoughts that he's having. You know, he thinks he's been doing the horror thing too long that he doesn't he doesn't scare people anymore. And like the part that like really chilled me kind of is when, um, you know, he's saying that the films like the films haven't gotten bad. I've gotten bad. And they're, they're calling them camp, high camp now. It doesn't really mm-hmm doesn't really work in the world anymore and he shows sammy a newspaper headline yeah you know that says youth kills six in a supermarket or something yeah. which gave me a chill because that because, happened pretty recently um, in our own day and age yeah, here very recently a bunch of people are killed in a supermarket in the chain of supermarkets that i work for yeah yeah, that kind of that really got to me. And, but he's but he's right. That's like he's right on like the world is getting crazier around them yeah. basically, and they're realizing that the real horror in the world is people. Is basically, mm-hmm. I think, what the whole movie is is saying. Yeah, I think so too. But at the same time, this scene is so charming. <laughs> you it's know, so funny. That, that, that's the thing. <laughs> so then he stands. Yeah. So then Sammy stands up and he's like, and he's he's already drunk when he gets yeah. to his hotel room. He stands up and he's like, I'm going to go offer the part to Vincent Price. And then he just sort of goes down <laughs> on, to his knees. And I he's love like, that. I think I should go. And he's like, I think you should stay. It's like, I think I should stay. And he just like he falls wanders down into on the, the bed, into the bedroom and says, hey, that's my bed. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That, that is the funniest part, I think, when he's drunk. Oh, the second funniest part. Next right. one is when they uh, when they wake yeah, up. When they wake morning. up together, yeah, that's good. But there's <laughs> there's something. Oh, uh, when they're watching the Criminal Code, and he, and um, and Sammy says, "Yeah, I saw this at the Museum of Modern Art," and he goes, "Oh, great! So I am a museum piece." And um, Sammy says, "All the good movies have been made. Been made, yeah." And it's just sort of this defeated idea. But that is refreshing to hear that in a movie from 1968 because people say that all the time now. Right. You know? Yeah. You hear that all the time. Like, all the stories have already been told. And it's like, well, that's not really true. It's not true. true. It's not true. (laughs) It's not true at all. I think we're we're always right around the corner from the next, you know, depending on what era we're talking, from the next Night of the Living Dead or the next Star Wars or the next Scream. I think it could happen at any anytime and it's just gonna I think it already is happening change everything i think it's more of an indie sort of revolution that's happening now because mm-hmm. you know what's happening with big movies is big movies have sort of become formulaic and you have all these independent films again that are really trying to shift the thing i it's you can't I, for me i can't name the movie you know, like where you can with something like Star Wars. It was clear sure. Star Wars changed things or Texas Chainsaw changed things. Scream. I mean, I remember when Scream came out and people were like, this is the thing. But but even maybe even a couple of years ago, like Get Out. I remember that being just yeah. one of those things where it was like, whoa, this this really shifts something here. I think that's where we're at now mm-hmm. is that things are changing just kind of more more broadly just new voices yeah i think is the thing it's new voices it's people of color women mm-hmm. 
LGBTQ people yeah. are making amazing things. And that's just what we're, we're getting now. Like the same stuff that we, we've seen over and over and over again for decades and decades is kind of going away. And we're getting these new voices that have never really had a chance to tell their stories before. Right. And that's that's what we're getting now. And I love that for one thing. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And, you know, every, so no, every time no, the new. Not all the good movies have been no, made. Not all the stories have been told. Exactly. And there are so many more. I mean. We've been telling stories for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. And film is a re- relatively young medium in all of that. We, <laughs> we've we got plenty more. There's plenty more out there. Then we cut back to uh, Bobby again in this really, really cool scene um, when Eileen comes home from work and Bobby is sitting there in the dark on the bed smoking a cigarette and you that that's another great transition because byron orlock turns off the light and the screen goes black and then it Mm -hmm. shifts to bobby lighting the match in the dark i think that's a great transition from one element to the other and this scene just looks really cool it's it's kind of not logical the way that it's lit because it kind of looks like the the light from his cigarette is supposed to be like the light that's on his face, but it doesn't, that's not how it would work at all. I think that was, was the effects they were going for, you know, where it's just like a little, whenever he takes an inhale, you, it gets a little bit brighter. Like right. that's not really how it would look, but that's basically what he was going for. Yeah. And I think just, I think it looks so cool. And it's, it's all, again, it's really creepy because like an Eileen comes home and he's like, I d- like, don't turn on the lights. It hurts my eyes, which also kind of makes me think. Brain tumor. Yeah, that's right? something I had never considered. But yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and I don't really remember exactly what was said in this. But he's just. He, she says. She says. Well, do you want to talk now? And he's like. Oh yeah. It's like no. Uh, no, you're tired. You're tired. Because yeah. I think he's made up his mind at that point anyway. I think so. Yeah. Before she left, I'm wondering if he might have. He still could have. He still could have been brought back from the brink here, but I think he's gone over the edge. I think so. Because this next, because he wakes up in the morning, the first thing you see is those giant red letters that say die. This sequence reminds me a little bit of Psycho because it's sort of montage. It's not as cut as like the shower scene, but you know, she comes in oh, the room, okay. he's typing, he picks up the gun, she leans in to kiss him, uh, he shoots her in the stomach, she falls backwards, it's really done quickly, and then, you know, he goes in to his mother's room, you know, shoots her, the delivery boy with the groceries shoots him, I mean, poor guy, I mean, just this right. randomness of it all. But then he's so meticulous about the cleanup. It's very Norman Bates. You know, he drags them and puts them nice, neatly into the beds. And it's terrifying. Bogdanovich has said the idea behind Bobby was to have him be kind of Norman Bates-ish. To have him look just like a normal... Because, I mean, you watch the original Psycho. And, you know, speaking of attractive men, right? Anthony Perkins is a beautiful man in that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's there's nothing about him that makes you would think that he would do anything horrifying and i think that's supposed to be the point here with bobby i mean he's just sort of ordinary yeah he's there's nothing about him that makes you think automatically that oh he's going to kill all these people it's just that i, I really that sequence is just it's yeah. very in your face yeah. and the way that it's shot especially the scene of of yeah his his wife coming mm-hmm. up to give him a kiss in the morning and it's and it's just so quick and out of the blue and like like the shower scene it's not graphic, but it's violent just from the mm-hmm. cutting. You don't you don't see, you know, lots of 
entrance and exit wounds, frankly, because they didn't have the money. <laughs> you know, there's not a ton of blood. There's you, you see a little bit of blood. Yeah, there's some blood, um, but not splatter movie. What makes it more violent is the way it focuses on the aftermath of the victim. I think. Yeah. Especially with his mother, the way his mother like runs in and is like, you know, Bobby, what's going on? Because she's heard mm-hmm. the shot from when the wife was killed and it just, it stays on her as she just like slumps down Yeah, after she's been shot. And it's yeah. just like horrifying. And then the look on the, the poor grocery delivery boy's face when, when Bobby comes into the kitchen. And this is like one of the only times Bobby hardly ever has much expression on his face. There's a couple parts where he looks just a little bit frantic where you can see just like a mm-hmm. little bit of the human inside. And I think, this is that part. This is one of those parts. But he still, he just does it anyway because yeah. he has to in a way. Because it's just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's so chilling. <sighs> Again, like you said, yeah, like the randomness of it, which is, <laughs> comes up even more yeah. in uh, the next thing that he does. Well, I mean, because well, what we have here is then it goes to the type note, which is typed in red capital letters. Yes, uh, it's in red ink, which is, oh, yeah. Uh, and it says, to whom it may concern. It is, I wrote this down too. It is now 11.40 a.m. My wife is still asleep, but when she wakes up, I'm going to kill her. Then I'm going to kill my mother. I know they will get me, but there will be more killing before I die. He essentially plans on suicide by cop yeah. is, is what he is foreseeing. And you see that in every move he makes uh, from, yeah. from here on out. But then we go back to another cute little scene. <laughs> Good God, this part's so funny. We go, we go back to um, Byron and Sammy on the same morning as, you know, these stories are slowly converging. This is the day of his public appearance that he's supposed to do it at the movie theater or the drive-in but yeah this scene where uh byron and sammy first sammy wakes up and he, looks <laughs> up, <laughs> he sits up in bed he looks over at byron laying there they're lying in the same bed which is super cute and he can like just kind of goes ah well it does this <laughs> it does this great <laughs> cut insert shot of that just lasts for a second of him of a, like a close-up of orlock you know so it, it's it's a little bit of a startle it to, to the audience as well, the way it's cut. Yeah. And I, I love that little touch um, because, you know, I mean, it's funny. Yeah, so that part was in the script. Um, but then when Jenny knocks on the door and Byron goes to, to answer it, this is the part, this is kind of the best part. Karloff being like super funny. This was his idea to do. Um, as he's walking to the door, he kind of catches a glimpse of himself in the mirror, and he has like just a second where he goes, ah. yeah. <laughs> <And> he startles. <laughs> he's startled by his own reflection in the mirror. It's a wonderful, fantastic. That's a fantastic moment. Yeah. So much, I love it. And this is and this is where Jenny brings in um, the the passage to you know this is your. You have a suite to on the train to uh, to Chicago, then to New York, and then passage to to England. It's like send them all back. I'm going to do the public appearance. Besides, I said I want to go home on the Queen Mary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's such a sweet way for him to say it that you were right. That's him saying I'm sorry, and yeah. him saying you were right. I think, yeah. And it's, it's and she lovely. accepts it. I like that. It's they just have a little smile between the two of them, and they get it. It yeah. just shows they've they they've known each other for a long time, and there's sort of a fatherly daughterly affection. Yes, it's very sweet. Where I she's like, really... "Here, you're being stubborn. I'm going to play into this, 
and show you exactly the way you're acting and the way it's making me feel. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, yeah, okay, you're right. <laughs> I want to mention the actress's name. Uh, it was uh, Nancy, yeah, Nancy Shua is her name. Okay. I'm not sure that um, how much else she's been in, but she's just lovely and she's so good in this movie. And she, again, not in very many movies. She's listed in, on Letterboxd as an actor in three films. For what, and it looks like she was a child actor. Because one of them was from 1945. Oh, wow. Uh, another one from 1947. She's so wonderful in this little part that she has. I wish she had done more because I think yeah. she's really wonderful. Gorgeous. Oh, good God, yeah. <laughs> That's my chance to say, yeah, she, <laughs> she's hot. <laughs> your chance to be she's hot. <laughs> she's so beautiful. She, and she, you know, it's, um, anyway. I I adore her and Orlock's relationship. And it's something I had never really, really thought about before this viewing. Uh, Really? That was like one of my favorite things. Yeah. And I don't know why. I I guess I had always focused on sort of Sammy's relationship with Orlock and stuff. But the relationship between those two, between um, Jenny and Orlock, is just so sweet and wonderful and charming. And And you need that, especially hmm. for what happens later on. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. I don't know why it never really impacted me much before. For some reason, that wasn't the relationship I ever really put much focus on. And I don't know why, because now it's kind of my favorite thing in the movie. Okay, so he's agreed, again, like we said, to the public appearance at the drive-in. And then we cut back to Bobby, who is back at the gun store, and he buys a fuck ton of bullets. Yeah, so this is a different gun store. I think it's the same one. I think it's just a different guy. Oh, okay. okay. Is it? I, I thought it, I thought it was a different. Maybe I could be wrong. I thought it was a different different place, but the line that he gets. So what are you going to do with all this? Is like, I'm going to shoot some pigs. Shoot some pigs. And that is a a weirdly prophetic line. Yes. Because that obviously for me it, it immediately draws references to Manson because that's that was the language they used. I mean, for for the rich people that they killed, they would call them pigs. They would write pig um, or political piggy in in their blood of the LaBianca and the Tate house. It's creepy because, I mean, this is a year, year and a half before the Manson murders. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one knew who Charles Manson was when this movie was made or came out. One of those, yeah, just weirdly prophetic things. Yeah. Also, kind of hard to watch the scene when you just see all those bullets piled up on the counter yeah it's like why is there not a question more of a question you know about why he needs this many bullets you know it's not really probably wasn't a thing back then no but he does go back and he does at least question his supervisor to make sure but i think it's it's more can he put this on his father's tab (laughs) yeah the kind of thing so it's yeah it's just so hard to watch it really now, is. like with with what we've been through. I refer to 1999 a lot. Um, and 1999 on my birthday, my 20 oh God, on yeah. my 21st birthday oh, in ni- yeah. in 1999 uh, was the day that Columbine happened. Wow! And I didn't really know much about it until the next day. To be honest, that's one of those things for me as a teacher. I was a semester away from my student teaching when that occurred. So this was a terrifying thing. Yeah. When you talked about the grocery store shooting, I understand your feelings there, I think, because I've had similar ones, of course. You know, in 99, thinking I'm going into teaching and this Mm -hmm. tragedy, unspeakable, unimaginable thing 
and how it all happened and it is just like it's terrifying terrifying and that's and you know I, I know that's sort of seen as the beginning of the mass shooting trend but it really was happening before that too i mean when you have stories oh, yeah. like whitman it's just it's just a frightening reality of the world and you know yeah. i think when it, it when shouldn't it com- be that's the that's the the travesty of the whole thing is that it should not be as much of a reality or as much of a thing as it is now that it happens once a week sometimes twice a week it should not be a normal it should not be a thing that we have to have not to get political or whatever but after hearing about this so much fuck all guns i'm done (laughs) with them yeah if there was never a fucking gun anywhere to be seen for the rest of my life whatever i'm fine with that you don't really need them i'm a little deeper into the heart of darkness i just like people will figure out other ways <laughs> you know oh, sure. yeah, um oh, sure. so i guess that's uh, but yeah i i definitely i i empathize with your with your feelings on that though it sucks right it does that's why the, it the does. Thing, this movie is so like kind of traumatic to watch now because it, you're it's so much more of a reality for us now than it was back then yeah and then especially like i was what i was kind of doing was i was kind of like bridging this to uh matinee mm-hmm. in a way too like thinking about instead of the cuban missile crisis and that think about school shooting i was thinking about school shootings you yeah. know and the fear that kind of fear from from the kids and how exactly yeah, because was... i think that one of the, i'll talk about it more when we get to matinee i think um I think Joe Dante was was talking about, you know, the duck and cover drills and things like that and how people mm-hmm. didn't get that for so long, you know, when the movie was released. But then I'm kind of like, dude, you're kind of out of touch on that because we've been doing duck and cover drills for shootings for since 1999 in, in schools. So it hasn't been that long. So people get it. I mean, I yeah. love Joe. I love Joe Dante. And I don't, and I, I know that all the directors that we talk about listen to our show. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so Joe Dante, we still love yeah, you. so Joe Dante, we love you, but, but want you to know that, yeah, we, we get that too. We get it too. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. Uh, let's, let's get so, back on no, track. Let's get let's, back on track. Let's go back. Let's go back. Back to, uh, again, a lighter section. Um, Orlock is getting ready for his appearance, and he has a meeting <laughs> with Kip Larkin, the uh, the radio. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love this scene. He's I love this scene. To, oh, yeah. He's going to announce him um, at his public appearance. At the I, saw, I saw so many of your movies, man, and it just blew my mind. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best exchange i love that's that the best line. my favorite yeah, so he's oh god it's just kind of funny to watch thinking about it in terms of like um bad questions that you've heard from journalists or audience members that like what do you like because what's what it like, like about being, being in movies, in movies? uh what <laughs> next question is please. byron arlock your real name it's like sammy this isn't very interesting <laughs> What is interesting about this scene, though, is, yeah, yeah, Sammy gives him an idea of, like, well, why don't you tell a story? Like, give us a, mm-hmm. do you know a kind of short story, maybe, that you could tell its appearance? And he tells this story, Orlock does. The Appointment at Samara, which is, this is such a great story. It's brief. We could probably drop this clip in. This would probably be a great clip. Yeah. Um, but it just the way he tells it. And I love that Karloff did it in one take perfectly as the cameras yeah as the cameras like kind of pushing in pushing on him stays on him yeah once upon a time 
Many, many years ago, a rich merchant in Baghdad sent his servant to the marketplace to buy provisions. And after a while, the servant came back, white-faced and trembling, and said, Master, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and I turned to look, and I saw that it was death that had jostled. And she looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Oh, master, please lend me your horse that I may ride away from this city and escape my fate. I will ride to Samara, and death will not find me there. So the merchant loaned him the horse, and the servant mounted it and dug his spurs into its flank, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he rode towards Samara. Then the merchant went to the marketplace, and he saw Death standing in the crowd. And he said to her, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? And Death said, I made no threatening gesture. That was, that was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. It's it's a it's he one it complete so yeah. story. I mean, it's it's as good as anything he ever delivered. You know, any voice acting he ever did for like the Grinch. <laughs> you know, it's as, it's it's on that level for me. It's that good. It's it's just so wonderful. And okay, so this is. This is uh, one of my three favorite performances of Karloff. And to me, this is the moment that, along with one more scene, that puts it up in that upper echelon. Yeah, puts it in the upper echelon for me because they are Frankenstein's monster, particularly in the first film. Um, I actually like his performance as the monster better in the original than in Bride. And then one that I just wrote about recently, uh, The Body Snatcher, the movie he did with... uh, Val, one of the movies he did for Val Luton, directed by Robert Wise. Terrific movie. If you've never seen The Body Snatcher, Karloff is incredible in that movie. That may be his best performance of all time. So anyway, from 1945, The Body Snatcher, and then this one. Those are my three favorites. And it's just, it's nice because it's sort of like the beginning of his well-known element. Yeah. Of, he, he had made like 60 movies before he made Frankenstein, but uh, <laughs> um, which is crazy. You know, his over, his overnight sensation took decades to get there. And then 1945, you have this sort of middle section with the body snatcher and then this late, late film. This was one of his very last performances. He made a couple others after this, but they're not really noteworthy. But this performance is just so good. And you, he, you can tell that he's just, wow, someone really wrote me a part. And I think he's relishing in that. To be able to tell that story, which is an old-fashioned kind of story, you know, Fable. It, yeah. yeah, it's 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 sort of the old horror, but the way he tells it makes it feel very modern. And they're about being confronted by death, and that's sort of a core element of this movie. You know, death is it's about fate. Too. Yeah, fate. Death is coming for you at some point. And you don't know when that's going to be. You can't run from it. And you can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You just kind of got to be 
ready or in some way of for as best you can be yeah and i i think that is that's a powerful theme in the movie and this story is such a beautiful moment of illustration of that and i love the way it just dollies in on him so slowly yeah and it's so controlled and it's so loving and everything about the way bogdanovich shoots or laszlo kovacs i should say shoots this is just perfection this is probably is just one of those scenes that elevates this from great to really 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 amazing great you know kind of movie yeah because when you think about like we already discussed at the beginning like what he what bogdanovich had to work with what his Mm -hmm. the initial pitch for the movie was and what he turned it into with something like this is just mind-boggling like i said making lemonade uh, making lemonade because exactly this is just to make a movie this good as your first feature under the conditions that you had to make it oh my god that's incredible this movie just boggles my mind that it's as good as it It is it's one of my favorite like debut features from any director you know yeah me too me too uh so then going back into the heavy um bobby heads for the uh the tower above the freeway and this is I, I i read this in my my review from like 10 years ago i reviewed this movie for my my personal horror blog and what i wrote about this scene was like this is the most chilling thing i have ever seen and i think it's still true mm-hmm. this whole sequence um at the tower just it, it really gets to me just the way that it is shot mm-hmm. so kind of Boringly in a way, so yes. matter of fact. I mean, he just lays out the guns just like he did in the trunk. In the trunk, yes. They're laid out on top of the tower like so perfectly. Yeah. And then he just sits down and eats, eats his a sandwich. Lunch. Oh my gosh. He opens the And pops the soda. And, you know, he's just hold. he's kind of cradling the gun and just watching. Mm-hmm. And then when he finishes his sandwich, he just kind of lays down and aims the rifle. Yeah. And it's just... It Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to watch those scenes. It really is. And one of the things that's interesting, they, they were not, a, it was against the law to shoot yeah. on the freeway, at the they freeway. They did Corman guerrilla style. Totally. Yeah. It's like shoot first, ask questions later, so to speak. Oh, what I um, loved on the, the thing on the DVD with, um, with Bogdanovich, he said that they didn't shoot any sound yeah. for this, for this scene yeah. that. The sound editor put everything great, in, in post. Yeah, the great oh. Verna Fields, who is Dude. who edited Jaws, she's best. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, and she okay. she uh, <laughs> she edited several several Bogdanovich films as well. But she's the sound editor on this, and having yeah. like twenty tracks going at the same time on this, and this, you would never, I would never have guessed. I never no. could have guessed that this was. Because there's so many layers yeah. of, of sound in this. Yeah, I, you never would guess that it was um, dubbed later, ever. Yeah, never. It's it's so I, that perfect. that blew my mind. Yeah, it's so perfect, and um, the way they stage it too, because you everything's from Bobby's point of view. When the people get, I mean, they they stage these scenes on the freeway. You know, people driving off the freeway and coming out and screaming and stuff like that. But you don't even really see their faces. That um, no. it's so distant. It's kind of grainy because you're seeing it through the scope. It like you said, it's terrifying. I mean, you. 
you texted me while you were watching it and said, this freeway scene is terrifying. And I was like, I, ha- I hadn't actually, because we actually, <laughs> it's funny because we actually started watching, we watching the at movie the same time. <laughs> at the same time. And I, I didn't know that. And, and I was watching some of the special features while you were st- started watching the movie. And so I was watching the movie. I was about 20 minutes or 30 minutes behind you. And you wrote me that. And I thought, yeah, it it surely is. Like I said, just, just the matter of fact way that, of just Bobby's actions I think is just what really gets to me it's like he's just like doing a normal Mm -hmm. thing like you know first he he aims and he has to make a little gun adjustment and then it's just like he just picks whatever car Mm -hmm. is coming into his sights next and no no thought behind any of it it's just whatever the next one is so he just shoots the people in the car and like you said yeah it is kind of the way that it's shot as distant from the victims yeah I think makes it kind of even more impactful in a way. Yeah. Then, I, yeah, it would have been heartbreaking, I think, t- to see their faces. But the fact that it is so anonymous and so random mm-hmm. is what makes it even more chilling. Because because terrifying. in that situation, you'd be like, "What did what happened?" You would have yeah. no idea. I mean, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, the driver of your car is is, is dead. You know, and so like, where did that come from? I have no idea what's going on. And that's done again during the drive-in sequence as well. Yeah. Uh, there's just so much of this time where it's like, there's just, what's going on? Where no one really knows what's happening. One of the things that I noticed about it this time through that I hadn't really thought about before is he just leaves so much behind. Yeah. It's like he's leaving all this evidence behind because he has no plans of surviving this. No, he's not going to survive the day. Yeah. He knows it. Yeah. Um, or he, that's what he, he wants. He doesn't think he will anyway yeah yeah just when he's just watching the cars uh, there's that one car that drives off and the woman that gets out oh god that gets me and, like he's got he's got her in his sights because um, i think the driver is the one that's been shot and she like runs around mm-hmm. the car to their side and he's he's got her in his sights and but he's out of bullets right and oh god he that, grabs that, the barrel of the gun part, and he, burns he grabs the barrel of the gun yeah yeah <laughs> that's something i hadn't really noticed before um there's lots of details in this movie that i hadn't really i don't know that had escaped me before mm-hmm. um that i surprisingly caught up with uh this time around and that's one of them it's just that the whole nonchalance of this scene just mm-hmm. like so gets to me like you know he's there's he only... tries to shoot her he's out of bullets he reloads and then he shoots that that shot of that woman after she's you know been killed by bobby falling down on the side of the freeway mm-hmm. that ugh, i can't man that's hard it, it is really really tough it's a tough scene it's as it should be i think because i think this movie makes pretty bold statements you know mm-hmm. about the reality of horror in our world when he goes to the drive-in and he just sits there for a while and he's like watching the mm-hmm. kids on the playground and stuff is chilling as well. Yeah. Um, it reminded me a little bit of, it was a little bit evocative of the third man with uh, Harry Lyme talking about what if one of those little dots down there stopped moving yeah. because they're on the pl- playground and that you kind of wonder if those are the kinds of thoughts that are going through his mind. Yeah. And the idea that he's so indiscriminate that he would kill anybody, including these children possibly we don't know that for sure it's just horrifying 
And another kind of fate thing, the reason he's at the drive-in, the, the police have arrived on the freeway. Like we said, he, yeah. he runs away, leaves a bunch of his guns behind and, and drives away. He just happens to, they're cha- they are chasing him, uh, the police are, but he just happens to kind of uh, lose them yeah. at, the, at the entrance to the drive-in. And that's why he, he ends up there. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't ever plan to go to the drive-in. It's completely random. And I think that's one of the things that makes it, makes it scary you know sort of the randomness of fate or if that's if that's if that's a term because obviously we think of fate as being very pointed and a narrow path you know you get from point a to point b but maybe there is a random element there sometimes too yeah and it's frightening it's frightening so there's so much I like, of the I like of this, this stuff at the... the everything sort of converging on on the drive-in theater, you know, getting yeah. everything ready, people showing up. To I was going to say and... I lo- I love those those scenes mm-hmm. of uh, like the the guy in the projection yeah. booth who's the, the real projectionist. I think he was, and his name and then, was Byron. Um, Byron, that's right. <laughs> yeah. His name is Ben in the movie. I think they think I think they call him Ben in the movie, but Something but like the that, real yeah. but the actual person was named Byron, which. Uh, mm-hmm. Bogdanovich thought was funny you know yeah I like these scenes just showing people arriving Mm -hmm. for the night getting stuff at the concession stand there's one scene it again something just in context for what you know is coming up later a car pulls up and it pans over to there's a baby in the back seat yes and I was like "Ah." (laughs) but yeah I just I really like these just kind of these scenes also just because like I said I've only been to a Mm drive-in once in my life there's one in Kansas City and we went to go see the new Ghostbusters and oh. <laughs> there and the sound, our, our speaker wasn't even working, so we couldn't hear the movie, but it was a really cool experience. So I don't have that much experience with the drive-in, but yeah. um, just those scenes made it me nostalgic for something I've never gotten to experience, you know? Well, I... And I kind of want to check it out. As a kid, I saw, I believe, th- maybe it was only two, but I think I saw three. I, I saw... I rem- I distinctly remember seeing Muppets Tank- Take Manhattan <laughs> and Return of the Jedi. I remember those very well. So my first experience of seeing Return of the Jedi was in sort of a washed out version because the sun hadn't completely set of uh, mm-hmm. on a on a driving yep. screen. And I believe I saw Superman three that way as well. What's sad is I drove by the Starlight Drive In in Tacoma. It it, it had just been standing for ages. Even after the theater stopped uh, functioning as a theater, it had been used as a swap meet. And so I just, when the pandemic hit and people and the people started going to drive-ins and stuff, I was like, oh, I wondered if they're going to open the Starlight. Well, they never did, and I couldn't figure out why. And I finally drove by there, and it had been torn down after just Aww. this last year. And so that was just sort of sort of one of those sad things because I do have even though those I remember that station wagon that we had that I saw those movies in as as a kid and you know we didn't have the speaker that you put in the window it was through the through the radio it was like through a station on the radio that you tuned in and I was very very young I would have been like 5 when we went and saw those movies but obviously some of those things just sort of stick with you i guess and for me it's apparently movie going experiences yeah and both of these movies were kind of hard to watch now that you know that kind of experience isn't really happening right now it's it's starting to pick back up again but most of us haven't been in a theater for like a year and definitely missing those experiences i just got 
an email this week, and so we're recording this ahead of time, so it's it's the beginning of May that we're recording this, but I just got an email this week that theaters near me are finally opening at all. I'm hoping to be able to go out and see something before too yeah. long here. When we get to matinee, I think that's more like that experience, but yeah. um, the drive-in experience is something. You know, it's not a great way to see a movie. Let's put it that way. It's not the optimal way, but there's something about it. And you don't always go there to watch the movie. Well, as is clear from this movie, you have you have the you have <laughs> you have the little makeout session between that couple, which I think is really funny. Um, so I mean, it's just everything sort of converging on there. You have yeah. uh, Byron and Ginny arrive. Yeah, and. Because, okay, so before this, though, while this is gone, he, before people start arriving, Bobby has, he walks to the screen and they show him close the door. And then once the movie starts, there's this slow zoom, I mean, really, really slow zoom towards the screen. And it shows this long section of the movie. But it yeah. stays engaging, because, even though the movie's terrible, <laughs> because because it's just getting closer and closer to the screen. Now I think I ha- I imagine that Bogdanovich's original plan would have been to to zoom it all the way into the barrel of his gun somewhere in the hole in the screen, but that I don't think was possible. Um, so because yeah. it, then it switches to to inside the screen pans up to this it like pans yeah up. the scaffolding like, that's like behind the it and he set up this is, sniper's yeah. nest and there's a little hole in the screen that he's aiming through. What an absolute perfect metaphor, right? For this whole movie is that he's literally the new horror of the world is literally shooting through the movie screen. Yes. Yeah, that's that's horror, exactly you know? the metaphor of this movie. It's it's brilliantly done. It's so brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's another his mm-hmm. second shooting spree of the day. Uh, yeah, and no one really uh, knows just, what's going like, on. Yeah, it's another kind of random thing. Like he doesn't really have a plan. I think he doesn't. He doesn't realize that he doesn't really have a good plan when he's he's aiming at people. He can't see anybody because all their the lights in their cars are off. So he's basically just cars that have light on. He has to find just whoever he can see. Yeah, cars that have light on. Whoever he can see to kill. Horrible. He kills. He kills the guy in the the phone booth first, though. Yeah. Karloff has an interesting line there too. While they're watching the film, he says it's. Strange not to hear any reactions, isn't it? Because we know, because he's obviously referring to we're not hearing mm-hmm. the people reacting to the film because we're not, you know, sitting in a theater together. But yeah. he's also commenting unknowingly on this whole idea. It's strange that no one's reaction reacting to the fact that people are getting shot because no one really knows. No one yes. can figure it out. Uh, there's a shot in here that just kills me the kid just staring it's the kid the He's kid like crying crying mm. and shaking and and it pans over and his father is sitting in the driver's it's seat just, yeah. dead is just oh that is that is true horror that that's that's intense that was brutal yeah i wrote that down too that's a brutal one right. uh, he kills the um the projectionist it's like mm-hmm. the the tiniest. He's in his own little booth, like the tiniest little windows, and he still is able to to get killed. Because uh, I think there's also a sense here, you know, the fact that the and I I put this into my article when I wrote this. I don't know what you think of this. the The fact that the management 
is so clueless and has no idea what to do makes me think it's making a comment on like government's inability to protect people from violence or also gun violence ineptitude with the vietnam war that's also kind of what i got from the strange not to hear any reactions line too just kind of not to hear any real reactions or solutions to um, this very obvious problem that we have yeah and i think that's i think that's a that's a clear commentary on that's poking saying hey do something about this why aren't you doing anything about this you are you that incompetent um and like people are trying to leave and they're they're blocked because sammy no they're not bad they're not i mean (laughs) they just don't know what to do i think that's i think that's also the commentary too is that it's not that they're bad they're just inept or they're unprepared for this unprepared. kind of situation. And, you know, I think that even kind of comes into play with something like the pandemic, you know, where, where you're going, now what? You know, you, you're kind of looking to these people that are, quote, in charge. What do we do? What do we do? Don't we don't know, know what, what to do. To do. <laughs> and they don't know what to do either. And I think that some of these things come into play whenever there's some sort of crisis. It's like we don't know what to do. We need someone to help us. Yeah. and But they are just as clueless as the rest of us. So maybe I'm reading too much into that, but that's the way <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's, see that. That's just how our brains are working right now. Yeah. No, I get it. <laughs> yeah. But this, yeah, this whole sequence is kind of, is kind of the opposite of the freeway sequence because we're getting a lot mm-hmm. more stuff of the, the reactions of the victims. Yes. The people in the cars that are being shot and saying like, don't open the door. Like, don't turn the, turn the lights off and like trying mm-hmm. to get the attention of other people in the cars. And it's just yeah. kind of after after this is just kind of chaos in a way there's like horns honking and yeah keeps cutting between all these different people and the lights coming on and one of the things that i like is you know because all the people are trying to get out but sammy has driven in so it's like the director of the film is the reason that the people can't get out you know <laughs> it's just sort of a, a funny little thing too there's also a, there's a whole sequence where people are like kind of freaking out and bobby is not even shooting any of them because he's dropped his bullets Mm-hmm. He does, like you had said before, like when he leaves behind stuff, he's also very like bumbly in a way and like yeah. how he's he carries clumsy, out his crimes. But yeah, he's really clumsy. Stuff. Like up on the tower, he had kicked off, you know, one of his guns and he, yeah. he here he drops his bullets. So it's just, it, it brings he drops I guess, his gun in the field while he's escaping mm-hmm. uh, the, the towers as well. So it is kind of, it is kind of reminding us, I think that he is human. And yeah. he is not a monster. He is right. a monster, but he is not like a monster. He is a human monster who is mm-hmm. make makes mistakes like this, even though he's, I don't know, doing this horrible thing. I don't know. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I think I, you know, when it comes to like true crime things, I bristle a little bit. And I and I I'm, I've used the term human monster and stuff like that in some of my writing as well or evil and things like that. But part of it is just like, I think it's just the capability of humans to be this level of evil. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the, maybe the word for it still is evil to say they're a monster or they're possessed by something. No, it's just within the human heart, <laughs> you know, which is frightening. And some of us are just better at keeping it all at bay than <laughs> others. This is, this is a rather dark thing, but my belief is that, 
all people on some level are capable of really being terrible. <laughs> and that is really dismal view of humanity, but, it's the but truth. at the same time, I think it's true. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's something I think that you also have to believe in order to protect yourself too. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I'm glad people, I'm not the only one who's so pessimistic you know I mean? yeah. about humanity. Uh, <laughs> well, this thing of not... I, like, I have a really, really hard time with trust for many reasons. Um, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's a big one because I, I don't know what is in the heart and mind of whatever stranger I'm meeting. I, I in a way, yeah, that is a way that a lot of people protect themselves is that you you have to you have to earn my trust. I like to uh, oh, big time. To yeah. make me not afraid of you. Yeah. Yeah, I get that for sure. My wife is very much like that <laughs> as well. You know, she, her, the ability, her ability to trust people is you, you got to earn it. <laughs> yes. So I, it's and hard, I it's hard that. to earn, but it is also easy mm-hmm. to lose. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> so don't fuck up, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I better not. I will. I'll be careful. I'll be careful. So anyway, then this is the, what you were alluding to with Orlock's uh, relationship with Jenny, I think, because Jenny gets shot. Jenny gets shot in the she gets shot in the shoulder. So. She gets shot in the shoulder. It's not that bad. <laughs> she's okay. She's gonna be okay. I love the shot of Karloff, the close up of Karloff as he's walking. Oh, I to love find, too, when he to just like he's source. like Jenny, and he's like, um, no, he's uh, he gets her in a car, and he's like, okay, get her, make sure she's okay, and then like that shot of him turning around, he looks like pissed. Yes, and here's mm-hmm. this frail old man i mean you've even seen shots earlier in the film uh, you can see that he's got braces on his legs which karloff mm-hmm. did uh he has there's one shot where his leg is just like bent yeah. so far i mean and most of this came from complications of his with frankenstein uh that movie ravaged his body really he's actually one of the reasons we have the screen actors guild is because of his experience on frankenstein was so terrible but that he's just like the terminator yeah though. Because Bobby, Bobby at this, yeah, Bobby at this point has made his way down to to ground level, and he's still like trying to uh-huh. shoot at people. Also, at the same time, there's other patrons at the drive-in, which kind of made me. Um, one of them has a gun. They're kind of they know where Bobby is. They're kind of yeah. heading toward. They're heading they're toward. Made to me think him, of yeah. the whole you know good guy with a gun being able to stop the bad guy with a gun thing. Right. But yeah, but instead. It's uh, it's Orlock who goes after him, and he even gets shot. He gets, he gets grazed. grazed in the temple. He he's, he's grazed in the temple, and he then he just, he sort of puts his hand to his head, and then he just keeps he going. Walking. And and Bobby keeps shooting at him and missing, and he sees Orlock up on that the is, screen. He sees that him. Is the best he moment. sees him there. And they're just sort of converging on him and he gets confused and he yeah. doesn't know what's going on. And then I love that Orlock just takes his cane and just knocks the gun out of his hand and slaps him like he's a four-year-old. Yeah. I mean, not that I would slap a four-year-old. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it's, like he's, it's like he's this little kid. He just, sort of, he just sort of slaps him, you know, like he's being a naughty boy, yeah. you know? I, I, That's the only I way I can that. describe it. I love that part, though. Yeah, like we were talking about. You were talking about before with um, he's looking back and forth between the screen and the real Orlock is that's such that's so perfectly done because Orlock on the it's screen. It's almost like a fun house. C- yeah. Cause, like a hall of mirrors. <laughs> like a hologram of him or something. Because yeah. the Orlock on yeah. the screen is kind of wearing the same outfit 
that the real uh-huh. one is wearing, and they're they're walking yeah, at sort of him tuxedo. from opposite directions. And I don't know how he can be confused with the one on the screen being being real I or know, whatever. I know. I think whatever. I think his mind is yeah. supposed to be. It's the way it's cut, though. I mean, it sort of puts you in sort of this head spinning yeah. way yourself, you know. And I, he even I shoots think it's at the really screen, well. at the orlock on the screen at one point. Yeah. And you're like, no, that's not going to work. Well, then then after after he slaps and he's sort of cowering in the corner yeah. and he looks down and Sammy comes and, and finds him and stuff. He says, is that what I was afraid of? You know, like this little cowering child, essentially, that's what I was afraid of? Mm-hmm. Is that is That is a moment that is really... There's there's more have, to that than I can express. Yeah, I have. I, think. I used to like kind of agree with I think what his sentiment probably was behind that line, which was that he's just ultimately a, a coward, a little person, maybe not to mm. be afraid of. But now, kind of again, like going through what we have, I think um, actually, yeah, that's exactly who you need to be afraid of. You need to be afraid yeah. of the quiet ones, the ones that like you were talking about before, the ones that don't talk about their emotions, don't express what they're feeling, bottle that right. kind of stuff up inside. So yeah, Anywho, what do you think of that line? What do I think? I, I think you summed it up perfectly, honestly. The sentiment that is expressed in the movie, I think is the first one you said though. Mm-hmm. I think it's like this little insignificant thing is causing so much fear. But at the same time, it's it's just like it's, there's also the sense that horror is in things we don't expect, like real horrors and things we don't mm-hmm. expect. Because how often have you heard, you know, after some sort of shooting or something, he was such a quiet person, yeah, exactly. you know, or someone goes nuts and in their office or something like that. I, I never would have expected that from them. And I think that's part of the point. And it's, it's frightening that people who we would never expect are and like I like I said you know my dismal view of humanity that we're all capable in some way at sometimes the the monster's teeth come out you know mm-hmm. I I told you before before we went on you know that I yelled at one of my classes today <laughs> or this week which is true yeah I yelled at one of my classes it wasn't me out of control but it was me frustrated frustrated and you know and and you see it you see it in more realistic ways, you know, something like the Babadook, you know, why can't you just be normal? You know, that sort of line. That's, that's an example where you just get frustrated and the, and the, and the monster comes out of yeah. you. Most of the time for most people, it's not going to get to the point of you're going to, where it gets for Bobby, turn into, you get for Bobby or, you know, some like, you know, Billy Loomis and scream or something like that. You're, you're not going to actually murder people. The idea, I think, that the monster is there in some level, I think, is is a healthy thing to recognize for people. What gets me, though, after this is, as Bobby's being arrested, his line... Hardly ever missed, did I? That line is just the most chilling way to end this movie. Yeah. It was all target practice for him, thus the title of the film. That's, that's um, a perfect way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and that's the horror. That's, that's why... I mean... You can define this movie as a horror movie, and you can define it as not a horror movie, depending on how you look at it. It's pretty horrific to me. <laughs> it's horrific. It's horrific. But I mean, I think there are plenty of people who would see this movie and say, that's not really a horror movie. I wouldn't just... Dis- it has a horror actor. It kind of I, talks about horror hey, movies. This is me playing devil's advocate. No, I'm just saying, like... <laughs> yeah. 
But I think there are a lot of people who would, who would look at this and say, is that really horror? And no. I think, yes, I think it is, because I think that's the point that Bogdanovich is trying to make. Yeah. And Bogdanovich, you know, he never made another horror film. What he did here is tell a story that is a real world story. There's no supernatural elements. I mean, there are in, in the other, the two other big horror films that I think of from 68 being Night of the Living Dead and, and Rosemary's Baby. There are at least most likely some science fiction fantasy, you know, supernatural element. But here there's none of that. And that is something that, you know, I think this paves the way for some like even like Last House on the Left yep. or Texas Chainsaw or The Hills Have Eyes, which are all, yeah, shout out to my boy, Wes Craven there, of course. Yeah. Hey, um, our boy. Our boy. Fair enough. Good. Um, <laughs> I knew that actually already. But um, it, it, it's just uh, those movies are far more extreme than this. But there is that real world 70s horror. You know, Wait, everything what is you're sort talking of about based. is what you're talking about is very much a part of my recommendation for this week. <laughs> well, I better not spoil it, though. But oh, no, that I, is very. But I'm just saying, yeah, that's that's very true. And I, I do love how this ends also it, we're back in the daytime as a, the credits are rolling and it's just a, a big wide shot or overhead helicopter type shot of the drive-in the empty drive-in with just yeah. bobby's car is the only one there as the yeah, credits kind of scroll over it it's so creepy looking isn't it yeah it's it's a very hitchcock kind of shot yeah to me, where there's just this one weird thing it's like it's like in strangers on a train when everyone's heads are going back and forth and then yeah uh, yes. robert wagner's is looking straight ahead you know, is that kind of a shot to me. But, you know, again, that's that's Bogdanovich and his love for classic cinema. Holy shit, we're already gone two hours. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. I don't think the matinee discussion is probably going to go quite as long. And not because it's a it's not a good movie. I think I, I love matinee quite a bit. Um, but I think a lot of the themes that we've would we've talk already about, talked about, we've already targets. talked about. So I think most of what we're... In all honesty, I'm wondering if a lot of this conversation is going to be, this is like Targets. This <laughs> is like how it, it fits in with Targets. I was so surprised because I watched Matinee first um, mm-hmm. as a rewatch for this. And, and then I watched so Targets I. the next day. And I was, or no, I watched it the same the same night. And I was like, huh, this is like kind of almost exactly the same in a way. They're, they're like we said before, they're very, they're structured very, very similarly. They even start with, you know, this other movie you know yes. it starts with this preview of of uh mant, mant. <laughs> which is uh, this okay this movie is so much lighter yes. though i mean it's everything it's still about pretty this, serious it's kind of I, yeah. when i was looking up um i just googled stuff when i um was looking at for, like pictures and stuff from matinee it had been it was labeled as like a comedy drama too i was yeah. like yeah, I mean, it is. It is a lot of it's pretty it light, some, but it's also pretty intense when you think about it and the stuff going on in the background. Exactly, and and again, like we said, it's that real world thing. In this case, it's the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this takes place, you know, in Key West. I mean, so this is yeah. right off of of Cuba here, right? You know, it's it's and you know the main kid Gene and his brother Dennis live Gene on. Loomis. <laughs> is it Loomis? Yeah. Holy shit. How did I miss that? <laughs> oh, man, that's great. But anyway, right at the beginning that the introduction of Lawrence Woolsey is so wonderful. Clearly William Castle, the same pose. Oh, yeah. uh, John Goodman, pitch perfect. 
Can we just talk about John Goodman for a second? (laughs) For a second? Uh, Maybe more than a second. (laughs) I know there seems to, like, over the last few years, there's, like, a good sense where everyone's kind of realizing, like, how friggin' awesome John Goodman is. And always has been, really. He always has been. He always has been. When you kind of look back, it's like, oh, yeah. Like, he's just that kind of... Would you call him a character actor? Probably. Um, Yes, but he's always essentially... There's so much of him in every role still. It's, it's, but he would be a character actor because he's not a a leading man type, you know? I mean, he's, he's so great in like all the Coen movies and Mm -hmm. God, I love him in Raising Arizona. And, but I mean, arachnophobia, arachnophobia, (laughs) arachnophobia. He's really different in arachnophobia than really anything else he was in. He's so funny though. I first got to know him, of course, through Roseanne. Roseanne. Because uh, I used to watch that um, as a kid. John Connor was just sort of one of, or Dan Connor, I'm sorry, was one of those guys that it was like, I just, I, I loved him. And he was, a yes. he felt like a real dad. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't the old fashioned, he was neither the old fashioned father knows best dad, nor was he like an Al Bundy type. You know, that was sort yes. of a, <laughs> sort of a, or a Homer Simpson that was just sort of reckless and stupid and sort of a bad father he was real right reminded me very much of of my dad (laughs) yeah uh, he he was different than mine i'll admit he scared me a little bit at first dan connor did because he actually did you know like yell at his kids and my father rarely ever did that um you know and things like that and but you know you kind of get the sense with dan connor of not to go too much on that, that, you know, <laughs> it was a, a, a middle-aged man with dreams that never came true. Sure. I think I would probably, I haven't watched Roseanne really since it originally aired. So I think if I watched it now, uh, unfortunately, you know, Roseanne herself is, yes. <laughs> ha, ha, is a bit of She's a in sticking it. point, <laughs> is a bit of a sticking point. But I think that um, the other actors in the, in the show, you know, Laurie Metcalf and, um, of course, the kids are also great. And and uh, John Goodman, I, I think I would see something in that now. Because, I mean, like he had that boat, that half-built boat out in the garage mm-hmm. that he was never going to finish. And things like that. And you know, I get all that so much now, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> and with that and with um, the other roles that we've seen him play, the thing that I love so much about John Goodman is that he is one of those kind of turn on a dime actors. He in is. A way, because he has he has the face that um, he's so jovial when he's somebody like Lawrence Woolsey or whatever you fucking love every minute of like being around him and Mm -hmm. when he smiles his face lights up you know it lights up so much and you just love this dude but then he can also do 10 Cloverfield Lane and scare the shit out of you terrifying he's terrifying Um, he's he's got both of those he's an actor that has both of those qualities and he's that's that's talent that's a rare amazing gift then of course you, you know love, I, you love watching either one. Yeah, I mean, good God, I love him as Walter in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, he's, <laughs> or and just, um, Barton Fink. Ugh. Oh, Barton Fink is terrifying. Oh, brother, actually, we're out though. He's amazing. And oh, brother, we're uh, out yeah. though. I think I think Barton Fink 
there you definitely see both sides of him because yeah. he's there. Oh, I could tell you some stories, you know, and he's got the yeah. this that grin and the smile. And then that at the ending, you know, where he just yells at him, goes, you don't listen and all that stuff where he's coming. He's essentially the devil by the end of the movie is just <laughs> so great. And um, that that uh, as much as I love him as Lawrence Wolsey, I think Barton Fink might be my favorite performance of his of all time, um, which is saying something because he gave yeah. so many great performances. He's always um, good. How, how are you going to pick? He's always, always good. it's always a great performance from John Goodman. Yeah. Well, I mean, two seconds ago, I was going to until you said Barton Fink, I was going to say that Walter from Big Lebowski was my favorite <laughs> performance of his. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I can choose. And then Lawrence Wolsey is way up there, too. Good Lord. It's so great. I remember tweeting one time after watching a movie. With, I think it was 10 Cloverfield Lane. I'd rewatch that. And I was just kind of like, can we just put John Goodman in every movie ever? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing him just all the time. Love yeah, him. And, He's so, he's so, uh, he, he's captures, because if you watch the old William Castle trailers, uh, this is just perfection. And he's not imitating William Castle. It's just that the, the scenario that they're creating and the types of trailers that he made. It's very reminiscent we're, of William Castle. We're like yeah. that. I mean, yeah. um, one thing that um, Dante and others have admitted, uh, William Castle didn't make like bug movies, like giant bug movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a little bit of a, of outside of that, but he's not a hundred percent William Castle. In my opinion, I think he's also a little bit of Roger Corman. Uh, I think he's a little bit of, you know, some of the, maybe even a tiny touch of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, as far as the showmanship goes, um, he even gets mistaken for Alfred Hitchcock (laughs) in one scene, which I love, but also, you know, sort of the 50 science fiction schlock masters who made, um, these movies that where there were, you know, giant bugs and atomic energy and all, all these sorts of things were just kind of there. Um, I mean, granted, this is probably a little late for those. This was 1962 is when this takes place. And that yeah. was the fifties, uh, was really when those happened. 60 you know, psycho changed a lot of stuff. William Castle's output after psycho was pretty much like, let's make my psycho, you know? <laughs> so you have movies like straight jacket and stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of a similar thing to targets is this guy trying to keep the mm-hmm. old, the old horror, the old like yeah. fun funness of horror with giant bugs alive. But at the same time, we have these kids that are going through true horror yes. with the Cuban missile crisis. Yeah. And so, like I said, they live on a base in Key West. Their father's in the Navy. We never see the father because he's been deployed. He's been sent out mysteriously on a, on a mission and we find out, we assume, if we, if we know anything about the Cuban Missile Crisis, that he's on one of the embargo ships yeah. around Cuba. You, you know, there's so much detail in this. I mean, the carpeting and the way the television looks and the furniture and um, all the horror magazines, which Joe Dante said he just brought from his house. I know, they were all his. And all the posters yeah. and stuff in Gene's yeah. room, I think, were his, too. <laughs> yeah, he said, and to to still have all that stuff that he had when he was a kid is just so awesome. Mm-hmm. I wish I still had my Fangorias from when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> that, that would be amazing, but I don't. Because this movie didn't really... I forgot, now I just forgot what the whole story was. This movie didn't start out the way that it ended up either, and... No. Dante really seemed to really put a lot of pretty much all of himself into the character of Gene, I would say. I think so. Being a monster kid and Mm -hmm. yeah. Gene doesn't really know that many 
people. He's traveling a lot uh, with because his dad's in the military. And yeah, he's a military brat moving around. He's new. He's a new kid again. And yeah, he doesn't have a lot of friends. They look at him strangely. But he's not the only you know military kid in this school yeah. either. But. Uh, some of the stuff at the beginning, you know, like we have Kennedy's announcement on television where he talks about what is where he I mean, the crisis had been happening. It's just that this is when the public was made aware of it. Mm-hmm. So he comes on and makes an announcement about that there are nuclear weapons on the island of Cuba that would be capable of wiping out the entire uh, southeast of the United States. And so there's there's that is the real world fear. Yeah, uh, that's the real wor- world fear for this movie, and it's palpable. I mean, I grew up in the '80s. I remember before the fall of the Berlin 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 Wall in and the end of the Soviet Union. We were talking a lot about nuclear war happening, you know, at any time. That was sort of a constant discussion, and it was really kind of scary, you know, that there are enough nuclear weapons on earth now to blow up the world seven times over and we're like what what's the point of this you know this doesn't make any sense the adults are so stupid so when when dante said you know that a lot of people younger people didn't really understand you know like the air raid drill that they do where they're hunkering the duck and cover drill that they're doing in the hallway it's like i kind of did i mean even as a kid growing up in the 80s uh, i did get that to some extent as well uh, we weren't doing duck and cover drills like that. You know, now we're doing <laughs> shelter and shelter in place drills yeah. with, I mean, I'm doing shelter in place drills with, with second graders and I'm having to explain to them that, you know, if it, it, no one's going to get in, the doors are locked. People will most likely just keep going if they check the door. And if someone does get in, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take all these desks and instruments and stuff. We're just going to throw it at them. And I, to have to try that's, and put it in, in a way yeah. that is not going to scare them too much. Yeah. But also prepare them. It, it's very difficult. And, and, I and like that. I said, I'm talking about second graders. Yeah, yeah. that's why I was kind of thinking of, of that, especially in, in terms of thinking about it with targets. I was definitely thinking about school shootings watching this instead of the because I don't have that that reference with the Cuban Missile Crisis or the threat of nuclear war, even though that's that's fucking huge to put on yeah. kids. Yeah. You know, because I, I didn't have the firm reference, but when you think about it, they're, especially when um, Sandra is giving her her whole little thing. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> I love that part and I love that character, but it's like, that's that's what kids were really afraid of. That's what kids were thinking. They were they really thought that their world could end at any time. That's yeah. a that's a level of fear that I, it is different. It's kind of, it's similar to, I think what, because I was still in school when, you know, Columbine happened and, and all that stuff. And. And so there, there was that that fear, but that is that is a whole other level of fear that the entire world world yeah uh, could end global annihilation <laughs> yes is, is is heavy stuff I can't imagine like I that said, for kids Ugh. and like I said I mean during during the eighties that was very much still in the conversation really there I grew up really I grew was. up in the early nineties really yeah so. and so I remember having those kinds of discussions. You know, uh, during sort of the close of the Cold War. So, and and I was young in 1989 when the Berlin, Berlin Wall came. I did it again. You said Berlin. 
Berlin. <laughs> Berlin Wall came down. I it was 1989. I I would have been you know like seventh grade. So all the way through my uh, so like 13, 12, 13 years old. I was old enough to really remember some of that stuff too. It was frightening, you know, to have these discussions about the end of the world as a little kid. And I was so excited to to watch this movie because I knew I was I've been having kind of a week. Just to kind of let you guys in, just like a bad mental week. And I was so excited to kind of watch Matin Day because the first time I watched Matin Day, which was only a few years ago, I think I first saw it in 2018, actually. So it's oh, pretty okay. recent that I, yeah. I watched it for the first time. I just remember it put me in the best mood. It was just like, it made me so happy. But this time I could not help but focus on the, the stuff on the in the back, or the, dar- the dark side of this movie. Yeah. Which kind of helps, it definitely helps you, I think, appreciate it maybe a little yeah. more. It helps you appreciate the light side when you can. Because I remember, because earlier this, I texted you, it's like, oh, this movie's like a warm blanket. And you were like, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> and so, because I really felt that, because I think it's the feeling of the movie, sort of the yeah. the interactions of the characters and stuff like that. It felt, yeah, it's like, even with the dark stuff in it, it just felt comfortable to me while I was watching it again and so but I can see your perspective not, yeah I'm not saying yeah. it's not that at all it totally is I think if I was in a better mood to begin with <laughs> yeah. I would have loved it. it it is totally it's a very joyous movie it's a very joyful in a way celebration of movies which is yeah. always awesome to watch because obviously we love movies yeah. and it's always good to to actually see that on screen and especially mm-hmm. through the character of the kids and through Lawrence Woolsey, who is just a who little genuine, kid at heart. I think he genuinely loves movies. Yeah. Okay. We'll get to my, probably my, what on this watch was my favorite sequence in just a little bit. But, um, you know, when we see um, Woolsey with Kathy Moriarty and <laughs> when we first see, when we first meet them. Yeah. When we actually see them in person, yeah. you know, <laughs> They're just not Hollywood types at all. You know, they're, they're just kind of, he's kind of a used car salesman, you know, (laughs) and, and she's sort of along for the ride with him and it's, it's funny. And, and she's, she's pretty world weary at this point, I think about all of the stuff that he's, uh, keeps doing, but she's still is like, okay, (laughs) she sticks with him. They have kind of a great relationship, like yeah. Orlock and Ginny mm-hmm. you know, from Chargis. I think they have kind of a similar thing here, where it's like they're very loyal <laughs> to each yeah. other, but she's, uh, I don't know, she's kind of uh, ready to move on in a way until until he kind of reminds her of the the love, you know, for the movies. That's kind of what I yeah. got about that, the end thing, in a yeah. way. The ending yeah. sequence of them driving away. I love. Sorry, yeah, we're I'm, getting to the end. No, we're we're Back we're getting <laughs> we're getting all over the place. There's some of the things about this movie that that just sort of definitely. Also, I want to see Galligator. I definitely want to see Galligator. <laughs> right? What do you? What do you? When that title just sort of pops into his head, Galligator. It's just Galligator. like, like hell yeah, that's it. I was like, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're introduced to some of the other characters like Stan and and Sherry. Uh, Sherry played by Kelly Martin, who I yeah. was so smitten with as a kid, yeah, because she was on Life Goes On, and I was I was a little younger than she was, and I just like, I just was so smitten with her. I just remember from her, all these uh, Lifetime movies. That she was oh, okay. 
Uh, and Stan is uh, Omri Katz, yes. who is the main kid in Hocus Pocus. I could not uh, place him. I was like, why does his face look so familiar to me? I was like, that's Omri Katz. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I know. Hocus Pocus, has, I saw it for the first time last year. I didn't grow up with that movie, so uh, I'm, I'm. It's it's a it's one that I've only seen once. So, it's um, well, you're gonna watch it again this year, right? What hint 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 nudge nudge spoiler what? alert. Um, anyway, like months in advance. <laughs> months months in advance. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but anyway, some of these things um, with this sort of reminded me of you know quarantine. To be honest, because you have like the lady in the grocery store who like grabs all the yes, toilet paper. Oh god, that whole and the whole scene in the grocery they're, store. <laughs> they're fighting over the 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 shredded wheat, and, and the <laughs> last box of shredded wheat, and all this stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, this is far too real. That guy, and, that guy is um in the shredded wheat scene. Who is he supposed? Who is he? He's the teacher or the principal. No, in real life. Um. Oh god, who was he? He's an important part of the. I forgot now. Never mind. I'm sorry. Edit that out. I don't know. I don't know. He was somebody like behind the scenes. He's that's oh, that, okay. was his, that was his cameo. Okay. I, I don't I don't know, I'm afraid. Anyway, um, cut anyway, that out, Michelle. I love I love how they're watching um they're watching the UN <laughs> on TV. <laughs> it's like he said hell. It's okay, Where did it's he a get crisis. That from? <laughs> the UN. <laughs> The UN. <laughs> I love that stuff. And then take your take your brother to see a movie. They go see the Shook Up Shopping Cart, I, starring Na- Naomi Watts. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought, oh my gosh, because this would have been early for early, her. yes, super early. Because I mean, she she really kind of broke with what Mulholland Drive. I think so. Yeah. <gasps> Which was in two thousand. So this is. You know, seven years before her, mm-hmm. quote, big break, I guess. I At first, I was like, that can't be her. She'd be way too young. And then it's like, no, that's her. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and they're not so into the shook up shopping cart, but well, I, think I, think, looks, I think it looks pretty interesting. I would see, I would watch I that whole movie. Doing, <laughs> I, one of the, you know what I think they're doing? I think they're kind of making fun of sort of the live action Disney movies that were coming out during oh, that time. Maybe, because yeah. Because it was like Herbie Goes Bananas. Which I adore. I think those movies are a lot of fun. Okay, I but seen they, a lot of those. but this sort of like the whole inanimate object that has a mind of its own and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's sort of a little bit of poking fun at that sort of thing, sort of the family entertainment of the fifties. That is, it's pretty silly, you know. But he's a but shopping cart. How's he's a that shopping bad? cart. How is, is that the... not interesting? <laughs> and he laughs and makes wheelies on his own and stuff. Yeah, it's cute. That is a cute little moment. Yeah. It is. Then I love how they, when they leave the theater and you've got the guys from the the Legion uh, or the the Citizens for Decent Entertainment, and it's Dick Miller and John Sayles. Dick Miller. Yes. They're talking about how, what a horrible film this is, and uh, that Mant is, I should say, not the Shook Up Shock Bean Cart, and how it's going to corrupt the children and all these things. And Lawrence Woolsey shows up and says, "Hello, gentlemen." What seems to be the problem here? And he's obviously acting. And, and, oh, yeah. and the thing is, uh, I hadn't really thought of that, realized that before, and I should have. But oh, he's totally he's acting. he's overacting, and it's so <laughs> funny. And he's and we find out, you know, moments later that he's hired these guys to start up a controversy because a controversy is going to sell tickets, right? And he starts handing out free passes. Like, excuse me, have you seen the movie? No, but I don't have to to know. I don't have to go into the sewer to know what's down there. 
you know, that sort of thing. The sort of things that you see. You're also introduced to uh, Sandra's parents during that scene, and she, they're beatniks. Uh, she's got oh, yeah. she's got the I Jack Kerouac <laughs> book and all that stuff. Then they come out of the movie he, later, and he's though. like, it's funny. Why not let people make up their own minds yeah. when they see the movie? Which is honestly very good advice. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> What what I hate is okay. So this was this was 1993. This is a Universal film. Five years earlier, Martin Scorsese released a certain movie through Universal, The Last Temptation of Christ. Right, which I, when that came out, being a young church kid, when The Last Temptation of Christ came out, you would have thought that the Antichrist had come into the, the devil world or some shit back. like that. It was just like it was ridiculous. Ridiculous, And you know what? When I finally saw the movie, I was like, man, every Christian should watch this movie. This movie's important for people who call themselves people of faith to watch because, you know, it's sort of the what if. And I thought, what was the big deal? It's like there are things about this that you can, you can just say, well, I don't agree with that. That's fine. But the problem was that people were protesting that movie without having ever seen it. And you had big voices, you know, like James Dobson and Billy Graham and stuff like that, coming out and saying, this, I've never seen the movie, nor will I ever see the movie. You know, I don't need to see the movie. And all these things, it's like, well, then how do you know? And I just I just despise that kind of stuff. And I've bristled against it we since s- we then. We still get, get that all the time. Oh. With people. Well, you see that even with, with like, so-called horror fans oh i'm not going to see underwater because it's got Kristen stewart in it or because we've had this discussion before yeah. you know but you see that even with that i don't need to see the movie to know that i'm not going to like it how about just watch the movie actually how about just yeah. read beyond the headline and actually read the article it may have <laughs> yeah, some exactly. it may not be exactly what you think it is anyway off my soapbox <laughs> but i think that move that section is so funny and I, I love that he's sort of creating this controversy in order to get more people in the seats because he knows you know no publicity is bad publicity um mm-hmm. and so he's manufactured it himself and he's handing out these pamphlets and stuff and then gene goes home and he's looking through his monster magazines and he sees you know dick miller uh, you know in one of the monster magazines and says, Oh, in a still from one of Lawrence Woolsey's other movies. Yeah. Other movies. Yeah. Says I didn't think anyone saw that movie, you know? (laughs) Um, but this is probably one of my favorite. Oh, I'm no, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think we're kind of not really going in order. That's okay. Going all over the place. That's fine. Yeah. So, I mean, because there's a whole sequence to go back to school because, because Sandra, Sandra here, I love that the school mascot is a conch shell. Is it really? (laughs) Yeah. It's so bizarre. I didn't catch that. Yeah, so they have this statue of a conch shell out in front of their school. (laughs) But um, then I love Sandra's line. They put Gandhi away for a year. Well, I don't know too many people here. (laughs) (laughs) Because she had been put in detention or something like that for her uh, for For talking about. Yeah, Yeah. she's a great. She's kind of one of those characters that I I root for. The kind of the outspoken outsider. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, she's great, and she's actually it's it's interesting that she's the outsider because in most movies it's the new kid who's the outsider, right? Yeah, and she's the kid who's always been. He's there. been there. He's been there forever. Yeah, yeah. She's lived there her she's whole. Never life. felt like she's fit in. Yeah, and and you kind of get that with her parents. 
you oh, know, yeah. her her parents are unusual. She calls them by their first names. The first names. They, they they treat each other as equals, even though she is much yeah. younger than them, and they should be parents, you know, to her. Yeah. But they're more like friends. Yeah. Which is not um, always the best way to parent. I would agree, as a parent. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, I love that I have things in common with my kids, and I can do things right. like that. But sometimes you got to be the parent. Exactly. Um, as becomes clear later in the movie, I think. You know, mm-hmm. too. Um, there's there's a couple of things where where the, I mean, she's a good kid. I mean, she's not. Oh yeah. She's not she doing get in trouble. It. No, she's not the rebellious type or anything. Would be rebellious against her parents. Would it be exactly. like she's ultra conservative <laughs> or something? Uh, but anyway, it's pretty funny. But I love this little actress too. She's yeah. she's, she's awesome. Great. You know her from like Independence Day and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Doubtfire. Yeah, she's great. And she's really good in this role. And there's so many small roles in this movie. And she's kind of one of them. It seems like they're, it's a very much an ensemble film. Even Wolsey and Jean are kind of part of this larger ensemble in a way. Yeah, it's not really a main character in a way. Right. It's sort of how this all converges into this community having this experience together, which I dig. I really like that. It reminds me of, of my experiences seeing movies as a kid, which, you know, when we get to the Mant section, oh, I can maybe <laughs> mention that a little bit. Okay. I freaking love this movie theater. All those posters. Dude. I mean, the day the earth caught fire is in there and, you know, panic in year zero and, you know, confessions of an opium eater. All these movies that Joe Dante <laughs> loves. And those are probably his posters. Yeah. They're just littered throughout this whole. And you, 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 what's funny is it doesn't seem like the kinds of posters that Robert Picardo as the owner of this theater would have on the walls. But it goes with the current movie that they're showing. It does. It Mant. does. And and I love that, you know, they're showing the preview was from Mant, but they were showing Tales of Terror, uh, the Vincent Price film, and uh, Burn Witch Burn. Yeah. Both great movies. I just love the, yeah, the aesthetic of the theater. Yeah. It's not not the kind of thing that I, that I grew up with. I grew up with, you know... A multiplex, uh-huh. basically a building of its own, and this is like the one the one screen theater, like in the middle of downtown. You know, that's yeah. got the 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 front, like a like a storefront, but it's just kind of a part of the community. Yeah, and there's that sign, "Fight Pay TV." <laughs> yeah, because. <laughs> During the 50s and early 60s, television was a big issue for movie yeah. theaters. And so that, that was just one of those things where, you know, they were doing all these gimmicks and stuff like that to try to get people, you know, like 3D, of course, was the big one, to try and get people, in, and then widescreen even, you know, to try and get people out to movie theaters rather than just watching on TV, and you know, which is still, you know, kind of the never-ending battle and... Mm-hmm. A lot of times it seems like theaters are losing that battle. But uh, I did have a one-screen theater in my town growing up called The Liberty. This was an event. Again, it was this whole community thing. If there was a big film being shown, like Back to the Future, because these were late run. He would get the the prints, you know, like after all the big chains had gotten their movies. Then he would show these movies on his one screen, you know, and it was only family films. He didn't show anything that was... It was G and PG, and then eventually PG-13. Never showed R-rated movies. Um, so it was only family films. I remember 
so many movies that I saw there. I kind of love that, though. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so, but anyway, I remember seeing Back to the Future there, and it had these terrible seats that were really uncomfortable. Springs went, like, right straight up your butthole. I mean, it was it was so bad. And then and then if in the front row, there, the seats didn't even have cushions. They were just wood. And, and so I remember seeing Back to the Future, these wooden seats, packed theater, sucked in the front row. Uh, the guy would get up and give this little spiel beforehand every time where he would say, Ladies, gentlemen, pests in the front row. <laughs> and then, you know, do his whole say no to drugs thing and, um, and, and, and play the movie. And then if there was a fuck dropped in the movie, that was the one word that he wouldn't allow it to be played in the theater. So the sound, if there was ever a fuck in a movie, because occasionally there were in um, PG-13, he would silence the soundtrack for the one word. <laughs> And That's it amazing. was just so memorable. I remember because it was originally run by his father and then his son took it over after his father passed away. And it was just like, I remember, you know, even exiting, you would exit out the front and you would see behind the screen. And that was just so cool. You look up and you'd see the flickering of, of, of a film running through a real projector. I mean, and even sometimes the you would hear the clattering of the projector going because the, you know, the glass wasn't thick enough to deaden all of the sound yeah. of it. And and good god, I remember so many of the movies that I saw there still. Like I said, it went even into the 90s, then it got shifted into sort of a dinner theater building. Uh, I think it's still capable of showing movies, but it's I mean, the slant in the floor is gone. All the seats are taken out. It, the screen is lifted up into the into the flies, and it's um, it's just kind of sad that it doesn't exist anymore. But yeah. having having that single screen theater, and it was only a buck to see a movie. It was the coolest place to see a movie, and so watching this that movie sounds just, like it. Yeah, watching this movie just makes me think of that place, and <laughs> I that's I, awesome. I wish I, I had all a... that. Yeah. Stories like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Those are some great memories. I don't have any great like movie watching memories really like that. Just going to it's, see them in a regular theater. Seeing all movies, I had. Seeing movies in a chain multiplex just is It's not the same at it's all. It's not the no. same. Well, my parents, they would used to they used to go and see movies in like these palaces that theater movie palaces that they have in Seattle and Tacoma. Um, that have now been shifted. They've now been converted to basically like stage theaters. There was one. Um, I just now thought of this in college. The town I went to college in is a very small town. And there was a very old <laughs> crappy movie theater in that town. But it, it used to be a stage like where they would have plays. They just added a screen and they also added a screen up in the balcony. They like blocked yeah. off the balcony somehow all around it. So there was a screen up there and there was only like 50 seats up in the balcony. And me and my friends saw Brokeback Mountain up there. Oh. It was very, it was very creepy. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> but it was I one remember... of those, yeah, it was one of those cool, like kind of experiences, like just a, something different from, yeah, the usual multiplex that we were used yeah. to. <laughs> it's so different. And I remember even we saw... We were on vacation. We were in Arizona and we went and saw Sister Act and it was playing on a single screen theater. And again, the owner of the theater got up and did this whole spiel before the movie started, <laughs> which was so, which is so weird now. But now I remember as a kid thinking that was very normal and said, this is one of the last silver screens in the United States. So a screen that was actually made out of silver. I thought, 
well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was weirdly flawed. It had a corner that was like discolored. <laughs> it was it, it was it was weird. And and to see this modern film at the time, you know, on on that screen was interesting. So this movie sort of waxes nostalgic for me for a lot of those kinds of things. Yeah, and the so. people that you see them with, uh, like I said, the thing that we've been missing this whole year is the the communal experience of going and watching a movie together yeah is what you get when it everything converges at the the showing of mant <laughs> yeah okay my favorite scene in the, there's in like this burped movie. in the middle of the sentence i hope that doesn't <laughs> go out <laughs> excuse you anyway um, <laughs> no, you're supposed to say bless, me. bless you bless you <laughs> my family whenever there's a, a burp or whatever they say bless you so that's what that is anyway this is all very embarrassing and nostalgic right now so back to the, the movie Brian back Come to on. the movie they're, they're so they're whole, they have the whole thing with the seat buzzers they're putting they're installing the seat buzzers into everything there and I love that Woolsey is like allowing Gene to be in on this while he's yeah. doing it he's not just saying like because Get he lost, calls kid. him out he says hey I, yeah. I know that I know that this guy yeah, it's like, oh, what am I saying? He's he, he the two <laughs> yeah. of us kind of had a falling out. I ah, know we didn't. We still works for me. He lets him into the world, and I really like that. I love you know Robert Picardo as the theater owner is <laughs> great. I he's funny. adore him in this movie. I adore him in just about everything, but he's he's just so funny in this. My favorite scene in the movie is they go to the hardware store to get something for the buzzers. Woolsey and Gene are walking and he says, so, so do you just sit around and watch monster movies all the time? It's like, yeah, they're my friends. Vincent Price and things like that. You know, these are, these are my friends. Like, Interesting company. And he says, well, my family moves around a lot. I don't know many people. He says, oh, 500 new kids a year. Now that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> but then he talks about stories. He talks about the woolly mammoth thing. He says, you know, he, the hunter who has the encounter with the woolly mammoth and, you know, but then he gets back and he, Hey, come to my cave and I'm, I'm going to tell this story, but I'm going to make the fangs a little bigger. I'm going to, and he sort of does that image on the wall, you know, it's, it's that. that animated yeah. image on the wall. My favorite part. And I think this is just drop the clip here. I don't think anybody recognized her. What do you spend your whole life sitting in monster movies? A lot. Yeah. Somebody like Herb or Vincent Price or someone. It's like they're my friends. That's a strange group. What are your real friends like? I don't have too many. My dad's in the Navy, so we move all the time. Oh, man. 500 new kids a year? That's scary. I remember the one time we moved. Now, this was to the big town, Hatfield, Missouri. I was petrified of those guys. Really? Oh, yeah. But see, now uh, I get my revenge. I get to scare everybody else, but it's for their own good. See, people that go like this at the scary parts, they're not getting the whole benefit. You gotta keep your eyes open. What's the benefit? Okay, like uh, a zillion years ago, a guy's living in the cave. He goes out one day, bam, he gets chased by a mammoth. Now he's scared to death, but he gets away. And when it's all over with, he feels great. Well, yeah, because he's still living. Yeah, but he knows he is, and he feels it. So he goes home. Back to the cave, first thing he does, he does a drawing of the mammoth. And he thinks, people are coming to see this. Let's make it good. Let's make the teeth real long and the eyes real mean. Boom. 
first monster movie. That's probably why I still do it. Make the teeth as big as you want, then you kill it off, everything's okay, the lights come up. <sighs> you see, the people come into your cave with a 200-year-old carpet. The guy tears your ticket in half. It's too late to turn back now. Water fountain's all booby-trapped and ready. The stuff laid out on the candy counter. Then you come over here to where it's dark. It could be anything in there. And you say, Here I am. What have you got for me? Where he's describing going into a movie theater. Come to my cave and they'll tell you your ticket. And there's the thousand-year-old carpet. And there's the concessions. Yeah, and the camera is just kind of just, going through yeah, the empty theater. Yeah, it's not on theater. them. It goes yeah. into the empty theater, and it's like you're in the POV, and and it's just magic. And, says, and, says, and then you walk in there in the dark, and you open the door and say, I'm here. What do you got for me? And that's just a beautiful way of describing that love for movies in general, but I think also for monster movies yeah, uh, specifically. And that whole part is is just so beautifully delivered by Goodman and so beautifully shot. You know, Dante's love for these movies is just palpable. And Goodman is is good at this because, yeah, he is very much playing the, the schlockmeister, the showman. But in these kind of scenes, you can, yeah, you can really see the, the real love and appreciation that he has for, for what he's doing, even if it maybe it feels like he's been reduced to making things like man's i mean there's still a love for that because yeah. it's just it's just a love of of the stories and escapism and and have mm-hmm. yeah having that experience of just like going to a, a theater and amaze me show me what you got yeah i want to see it i love that yeah it's it's really it's really great and there's there's a little moment in this too in, in this after that where he kind of s- goes in and sees his mom watching the home movies mm-hmm. just in their home and she's crying and he doesn't talk to her that's the one time where you see their father it's really touching it's very brief it's almost forgettable but it, but it's so good and it's after that that he has the dream where he thinks he hears uh, his mother and father talking that he's come home and he's talking about this thing and and he goes outside and it's empty and then mm-hmm. the bomb goes off <laughs> yeah. and, and, and he wakes up. It's just like uh, just this terror. And I think Sherry has a line earlier where she says, well, we're all going to be gone tomorrow. Or she's talking to Stan and says, we're, we're all going to be dead soon anyway. So so why don't we just live like nothing matters, you know, and because she's she's has this whole thing with her ex-boyfriend with Harvey. Oh, yes. <laughs> Harvey Starkweather, Starkweather, which is an interesting name considering we just watched targets this week too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, cause uh, Charles Starkweather, of course, you know, see the movie badlands. If you don't know who Charles Starkweather yes. is, he's a spree killer in the spree 50s. killer. I don't and know if that was like, I don't name. know if that's a reference, but I mean, Starkweather is a very unique name and it's, pretty a, it's much, it was stay, chosen on purpose. Yeah. Okay. I figured it was, especially like, considering what I was happens like, it's at interesting the end. that the bad guy in this, the, "Quote unquote bad guy" in this movie is named Starkweather. Yeah, and Harvey Harvey is kind of a weird character because you know he he's he's jealous of Stan uh, because you know Sherry has chosen. He feels to be, like a he feels like a bit of a predator to be honest. He is, um, but he is during those scenes. But then 
I actually find him really funny when he's like yes. running running all the stuff for the movie. He's in the mant costume trying yeah. to set off all the the seat buzzers and the the smoke and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I so I mean it's he he at least gets his comeuppance too. So I mean but at this point we're getting into that actual where it's all converging. I mean it actually gets to the movie theater fairly quickly. There's a fair amount of this movie that just takes place during the screening of Mant. Yeah, um, a lot more than I remembered because um, it's sort of sort of the whole community is converged, you know, and Stan has broken his date with Sherry and Sherry's bringing... Sherry, Sherry, Sherry's little brother found uh, like love letters that she wrote to Harvey yeah. and he threatens to tell her parents. So now she has to take him to the movie theater yeah. to go see Mance. And, yeah. And so he broke up because Harvey threatened to hurt him, right, or kill him yeah. or something, right? But anyway, this is this is where you see all the great um, sort of William Castle gimmicks going on, like the nurses' station, and you have to sign a waiver to go in to see the movie, and um, <laughs> that it has a little statue with that has actual ants on it and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Or the, the hand coming out of the ant hill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just so funny, it. and it's all of those things that are very, very much William Castle. And oh, okay. And another thing, can we talk for a second? about Kathy Moriarty. Oh, God, yeah, please. I don't know what... She's another one of those actors that whenever you see her on screen, she is just... She kills it every time, and she she can Mm -hmm. either be, like, super funny. I think it's her voice. Her voice is very unique. Yes, it is. It's a little, like, kind of gravelly in a way Uh sometimes. She reminds me a lot of Madeline Kahn. Yeah. Especially in a role like this. Mm Mm-hmm. This is so different. I mean, she hadn't done a lot of movies in a while. I mean, after Raging Bull, which was like a God, big she's, breakthrough she's for her. She's gorgeous in that. Oh. She's, she's like, if I remember right, she's like really young when she makes when she makes Raging Bull, too. I think so. I mean, I can't remember her age exactly, but really young. She's just remarkable in that mm-hmm. film. And she kind of got what sometimes happens when a star gets a lot of attention very young and out of the gates and stuff like that, that they just can't get any work, which is just a shame. It's so bizarre. You know, like someone wins an Oscar and it actually hurts their career. Yeah. You know, which happens sometimes. It's a very odd thing. Uh, She didn't win the Oscar for it, but she got nominated and got that attention. And I think she got a little bit of backlash for whatever reason because of it. I don't know why. It's stupid stupid when that stuff happens and it's unfortunate. So this had been, she hadn't done a lot. Um, between Raging Bull and this movie. <laughs> I mean, as I recall, I could be wrong about that. She's in Casper. <laughs> She's great and stuff. Yeah, and that was later, though, wasn't it? <laughs> I love Casper. No, I was just thinking about her from that. Yeah. I love her in Casper. <laughs> yeah. But I love her character here, too, That where she's kind of that... Um, like you were talking about, like kind of sarcastic, kind of over it she's, type of character. But there's also she, a lot of heart for, behind it. Yeah, forgive me can for see. saying it this way. She comes across as sort of the tough broad. <laughs> sure. You know, and, <laughs> no, and, and, yeah. and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. You don't say broad anymore, Brian. God. I know, but but <laughs> I, I actually hear people, it's like, you know, it takes a certain kind of broad to be able to to pull off a role like this. <laughs> and I, that coming coming from women saying that. Okay, so this I don't is, like that. I don't know. I never like. I don't. That. I don't like it either. But <laughs> I, I say it to make fun of it. Yeah, Broad. and and, and I'm, I'm kind of. I kind of am too, to be honest. But she she comes across as sort of that tough. You know, smokes five packs of cigarettes right. a day. You know, 
probably has a hip flask kind of person, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I really, I, I really love, love her. I love, I love her in this. And I love the, well, all when the, 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 the kid, like, when the kid comes up with like, like I need a bandaid or something. She's like, that looks horrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. She, exactly. She's dressed up like it's a like, nurse. <laughs> hey, this guy fainted. You're right. <laughs> nurse, nurse, this guy fainted. You're right. Um, so I, I love that. But she's she doesn't have a lot to she doesn't have that many moments in the quote real world, yeah. but she has a big part in Mant. Mant, yeah. <laughs> Can we talk um, about Mant now, please? <laughs> Mant is interesting because the the obviously the script is is ridiculous. What that could totally happen? Have you not seen the fly? Totally. First of all, first of all, the font that comes on the Wolsey International font is totally aip it's american international font the roger corman font oh it's completely i remember what it looked like Uh, yeah (laughs) i love the font for mant too or yeah (laughs) the m is like the it's kind of what are they called the manacles manacles i guess yeah (laughs) yeah and it is just so funny some of so like the dentist explaining how it all happened it's like well, he must have been bitten while getting his teeth x-rayed. I've been meaning what? to fumigate in here, but I've been just too darn busy. And then he goes over, he's a dentist, and he goes over and he pulls down the poster and it's a brain poster. He has a brain poster. Yeah. It's like, you see, you see, so it's all this all this ridiculous exposition and he's pointing to it. It's like, and I love how they all say, um, so radiation, which is measured in the, <laughs> all these, and, and how... Or they have to give a. a they have to give yeah, an explanation, a, de- a definition of a pretty obvious word. <laughs> exactly, uh, those we are know so what it means. Funny, those are so funny. I'm like, Especially the Magnum older guy is, that comes in like, later. That comes in. We're just seeing it in a magnified or larger, larger. form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and the thing is, Dante said some of the lines from Mant were lifted straight from the actual movies. <laughs> Um, which is just hilarious to me because uh, some of them were that bad. Some of them were great though. Some of I like. I kind of like movies like Tarantula. I have and, not seen any of those. Yeah, them is actually a legitimately good movie, even though the ants look pretty primitive by standards yeah. of our our special effects now. One of the things that I think is the actual Mant costume, like the it looks pretty good. Makeup right? looks pretty good. It's like. He put some work into really making this look decent. It's really detailed, you know, and yeah, even though the acting's good. bad, the script's bad. I love the guy playing the man. <laughs> I wish we could have seen his face. Uh, he's a great actor, especially he's in that so that one scene where he's like, "It's not a picnic for me," and then he starts laughing like, "Ha ha, picnic, picnic. <laughs> get it." <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, it, then he goes home and he, he smashes the ant farm. Free! Free! I am your... Yes. I am... <laughs> I love that stuff. He's, um, uh, he's a good actor. They're all good actors playing bad actors in this movie. Yeah. They're, they're so good at it. It's great. It's so funny. I mean, it's, it's a little bit over the top on purpose from mm. what it would actually have been in those movies, but not so much that it takes you out i mean you laugh you think it's funny but it's not it's not just a full out making fun of this thing yeah it there's a certain level of authenticity to it i guess that makes it entertaining still and sure. attention to detail in the work and all those sorts of things sure maybe technically mant and whatever movies like this are bad movies but as we've already established were they are they boring no no you're watching this. You're not bored because it's 
friggin' hilarious. So yeah. no, it's not just a bad like movie. when we talked about Ed Wood. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love you know the stuff like like where where he he goes and he grabs her butt and then the seat buzzers <laughs> the go off buzzers. and they all just fly out of their seats. <laughs> and um, I love the look on John Goodman's face when that happens. He's like, yeah, yeah. got him. He's so excited. I love it. Oh, it's so great. And then um, Rumble Rama starts and, you know, it goes over the top. And Robert Picardo. And they're spraying, is a... like, the insecticide. And, yeah. like, and the gas All comes out into the theater. I'd love to be in a theater that did stuff like that. That would be so it's much like, fun. Bill, come down from there. We've got sugar. You know, I mean, <laughs> so funny. What it's do you like, call you that call thing? Him? I Bill. call him Bill. <laughs> And, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, when... Okay, so Rumble Rama starts, and, and so this is where the quote-unquote real-world stuff seems to come into the movie. Ah, he's yes. watching TV, he's listening to the radio. Uh, this is the Robert big, Picardo's the, the theater, character. Yeah, the theater owner. You gotta explain some stuff about him, definitely. Yeah, yeah he's, uh, he's pretty... He's frightened, <laughs> let's put it that way, which is understandable. He's yeah. very, very frightened. And one of the things I noticed is the theater is full of kids. There are not really any adults. It's like the adults not are too all... Many. <laughs> the adults are all, like, worried about the real world. That's sort of the way I take it. Though... Obviously, most adults wouldn't be going to see this movie anyway. That's not. That's when you drop your kids off and yeah, say we'll pick you up afterwards. <laughs> exactly, and you could, and there wasn't the rating system in those days. So mm-hmm. I mean, everything was just you know it, for general audiences or for mature audiences. There was no difference there. Uh, but I mean, a kid could go see Psycho as well. I mean, there was no no one stopping him. So Picardo's character is pretty. He's pretty freaked out about all this stuff, and he's listening to the radio constantly for updates. And um, like carries it around in his pocket. He carries it in his pocket. He's upstairs. He's listening to the radio and watching the TV at the same time. Rumble Rama ends up shaking the whole theater, which takes his TV reception out, and he drops his radio in his fish tank. So he thinks this <laughs> is the big one, and he goes down to his uh, fallout shelter. Why does he have it in the theater though? <laughs> Why? Does does he have it in the theater <laughs> why location. would it not be at his house or maybe he lives at the theater who knows maybe it's one of those things where he lives impression. above it you know yeah i think that's i think that might actually be the case um they don't say for sure about it but i think that is a possibility with him we should also <laughs> mention the balcony can only take a certain number of people mm-hmm. because of the humidity and all these sorts of things you know regulations termites i think they say termites <laughs> yeah it'll collapse so anyway, that's all this stuff going on. Um, yes, and like we said, time. Starkweather is there dressed up as as the Mant because he's he's Woolsey has got a whole thing set up later on that he's going to come out and yeah, the Mant is loose carry, in the theater. Yeah, yeah, carry the, the man- nurse away. Right. Well, the Mant loose in the theater is right out of the Tingler. Yeah, because there's <laughs> if you've if you've never seen the Tingler, see the, the Tingler, Tingler is amazing. <laughs> this is a great movie to watch uh, in conjunction with the yes. Tingler. Because that whole thing, you know, the tingler is loose in this theater. Scream, scream, you know. And so he mm-hmm. <laughs> he sees uh, when Harvey's dressed up as the Mant sees Stan kissing Sherry, and he just yes. like beats on, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then Woolsey attacks him. But yeah, it's just the whole thing about everything. All these we've got all these other separate storylines that don't really seem like connected. And I just I right. love how they all they all connect. That's last part, just like in in Targets. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then you have this little scene um, where the kids go down into the shelter, the four of them. So it's Stan, 
and because it was after they sort of they all sort of run out of the theater being chased yeah. by Harvey. They Sherry all, and Stan have made up because and Stan have made up. she understands like or or Jean kind of lied to her about why Stan broke off right. the date with her, but right. she she forgives him. Right. Yeah, they go down with Jean and Sandra and Jean and Sandra Stan and, and Stan and, Stan and Sherry, Sherry go down. And Sherry has this line. She goes in there. There's no phone. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it honestly good. took me a minute to get it that's a good line but it's just like that wouldn't really be anybody fun. to call if there was exactly. a nuclear attack <laughs> yeah and then um it's not the russians it's rumble rama <laughs> you know i mean just these great lines like that so uh sandra and gene get trapped inside the fallout shelter and we find out there's air not enough air in there and it says this whole thing uh, between Picardo and, and John Goodman where um says, y- you can't take the hinges off. Uh, who told you that? The people who sold it to me. Oh, I'm in the wrong business. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that whole thing. <laughs> and so they, uh, they pull the door off with a crowbar uh, to get him out. But they kind of have a little... Yeah, Sandra and Jean have their little... Little moments they were together, yeah. which is really cute. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 nice. I mean, it's just this whole idea that you know the we could be here forever, and it's it lines up with the last section of the movie. It's like these kids honestly think their lives are ending, and it's sort of like, what are you doing with the last day of your life? Well, we're seeing Mant, you know, but there's there is sort of a a sense of sort of existential things going on too. They oh, really God, are. Totally. They really are looking at their mortality, and for kids. I mean, kids, supposed to be like ki- 12, 13, 14 year old kids, you know, that are really becoming aware of their own mortality is it's powerful and it's sad. It's powerful and it's, and it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's something that happens for a lot of people at various times. You know, you you get faced with these kinds of things when there is a big event like that yeah. that occurs. I mean, we're, we've in a much longer version of it now with the pandemic, you know, it, that's lasted for a year. But I think there is a certain amount of sort of facing personal mortality uh, <laughs> with, yeah. with, with this. I mean, when you hear about something having the capability to kill and it's frightening and can sort of feel like your life is taken away from you for a while. So... Anyway, that's getting deep. I, uh, I know, let's right? Be, let's be happy. Um, this is supposed to be the happy section of the podcast. This is the happy section. So the ending of Mant, um, <laughs> where we find... Well, th- this is kind of crazy, because you have this whole thing where Harvey holds Sherry hostage for the money and take... He's holding he's holding Kathy Moriarty hostage first, because yeah. he like carries her backstage, and then, then he says, all right, give me the money. Which everybody give, thinks is part of yeah. the little act that they're putting on. Yeah. Right. He's like, give me the money. Now give me Sherry. You know, Sherry, we belong together. And he's going to drive off with her. He's holding her at knife point. And all this stuff puts her in the car. And um, they're going to drive they off. They let her go. Well, yeah, I know. It's, it's because Harvey I think, has, I think has Woolsey's pulled her got away something... by knife point And Stan's going to go after her. And Woolsey's like, no. It's like, that's a little well, teenage girl I think, being held I think... at knife point. Go after her. What is wrong with you? But, hasn't, but Woolsey... Is like no for his own safety. I think though, because I mean, I think Stan okay, would maybe end up let Stan killed. go, but let the adults go. Well, yeah, but they call the police. Well, the police end up smashing into the front of Harvey's car and arresting him. Well, I, you know, I don't know if, if I, I I tend to think Woolsey had a plan. I'm just trying to keep it light. <laughs> 
I think Wolsey had a plan. That is the one part of the movie that I was a little, to be honest, that I was like, this is a little weird. I don't know if this really works as far as how the reactions and the story go. Because everything's kind of converging at this point. Because you have, you see that the balcony is still shaking. Uh, It looks like it's about to, it's going to fall. And so it's like, all right, we're going to have to help me get this, these projectors going, you know, because there are these projectors behind the screen. And we don't really know what they're for. It, it sets off. It, so essentially what happens, there's this big blast of uh, the, the audience is just like hit with this blast. And the and the screen just blows up into a mushroom cloud. There's a hole in the screen and and you see outside and there's a mushroom cloud and the and it starts fire starts happening. And then the theater just clears out immediately. Yep. Everyone just rushes out of the theater and we see that it was. It's nah. a little trick. It was a trick. It was a it was a trick to get people out of the theater. To get people out, yes. And but Dennis is still up in the balcony, and that whole scene with the His balcony coming outfit. loose. Oh. It's so cute. It reminded me of you know like it reminded me of my son because when my or like Toy Story, you know, yeah, the kid Andy in the hat. My son used to have like a whole Woody's roundup costume thing and Aww. it was it was pretty adorbs. Anyway, um they did this that whole thing, you know, they save him out of the out of the balcony and this is but the the, the it's kind the of an intense scene. Is it, <laughs> it is intense. Yeah. Collapsing. Yeah, and then it's like it's like this but it's on fire. It's on fire. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, and the then you see the projectors run out, the film run out of the projectors and and it's all been uh, it was just a projection of the mushroom cloud and everything. I think that is really well done because yeah. it is sort of that sense of the real world encroaching on the movie, like in Targets, but yes. with a happy ending <laughs> to it. Or just kind of showing like that it's it's not real and come coming back to reality in a way, yeah. you know? Yeah. Even though it's still not a great reality. At the end, it is because at the end, it's kind of like, oh, the crisis is over and everybody's gonna come mm-hmm. home they don't know that at the moment but no i kind of like i kind of like the look on woolsey's face when he like turns off the the projector yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he's he's pulled off this great trick i love it yeah he's like this is my this is my masterpiece this is yeah. my this this work of showmanship it's not just yes. the movie it's the work of showmanship involved and you know telling the kid hey you know, kid, grown-ups are making this up as we go along, too. Best advice you can give to a kid. No one knows I what they're doing. I love that moment. <laughs> yes. It's it's a great way. And I, the whole thing is like, my theater. You know, it's like, I, I'm, it's like don't put the balcony up. I, I, I suggest putting up two more screens up there. The sound bleed. It's the wave of the future. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, He's like, oh, insurance will cover it. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined my theater. Yeah. <laughs> You've destroyed my theater, whatever he says. Yeah. <laughs> the last scene I really like, the scene where they're I driving, uh, they're driving off. Uh, Woolsey says, to, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember Kathy Moriarty's character name. Ruth. Ruth. I'm sorry. Yeah. So Kathy, so Woolsey says to Ruth, hey, you know, these kids thought their life was over and then they got it back. They're just going to enjoy this. I mean, it's like wow how what a what an amazing thing to realize that your life is not over after all and then she asks how long do you think that'll last Mm -hmm. and he's like a couple weeks month year maybe until the next way to end the world comes along and that was really poignant i think uh for well i hate to keep bringing this up it just seems to be really applicable to these films is you know coming out of you know, at least seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for 
this pandemic, there is a sense of getting of, hey, the world isn't over after all. And I think that is powerful, but there is that sense of how long will that feeling last, <laughs> you know, right. uh, just the sense of even with me, you know, just, hey, theaters are open again. That's that's something like, hey, you get something back. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's kind of what I meant with what I was saying before. Like we, we watch movies um, sometimes for that kind of escape from the real world. And maybe it's something like a scary movie or it's something like Mant where it's it's something yeah. like this. It's totally impossible. could never, ever happen. And but you're you're with it in the moment. And and then you come back and then the movie is over. Maybe it scares you. Maybe it didn't, whatever. But you come back to your real life and you're like, oh, like, you know, my life isn't that bad, you know, compared to what I've just seen. And yeah, that could last for maybe a day until, you know, the next horrible thing we read about in the news. But that's kind of the the thing that movies can give you sometimes is that I know people don't like movies being thought of as escapism. I've heard that argument before that that's kind of reductive in a way. But I don't sometimes know. Sometimes, they are. sometimes that's what you need, and sometimes that's what they really can mm. be, and that's what they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think stories in general can be yeah. a way to live in another world for a while. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's bad. No. And I do kind of like that the movie ends with The Lion Sleeps Tonight. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, it's a fun song, it's of the era, but also that sense of the danger is at bay for now, you know? It's a very um, perfect choice. Yeah, it's it's really well done, and it's a it leaves you with a nice feeling. You, you see, you still sort of see these these machines of war out there, but the kids but are just but sitting on the beach. They're putting but the everyone's stuff away. coming home. Yeah, yeah, everyone's coming home. There's like there's sitting on the beach watching this return in a way to normalcy for now. You know, it's uh, it's it, it's a pleasant feeling at the end of the movie. It's kind of feel good. I feel like we didn't really talk about the movie a whole lot, movie like specific as specifically as the other ones. But I don't know that you really have to for this one. It's just yeah. I think just get the feeling from it. Yeah. Yeah. And we've also been recording for over three hours. So this is <laughs> this is uh, this is verging on the length of our Magnolia episode here. So this was supposed to be a short one, right? I know yeah. it was. I mean, both of these <laughs> movies are not very long. Not very. Not super involved, and yet we can still manage to make them involved, can't we? Yeah. I guess so. I guess so. Oops. Oh well. We just That's love movies. Funny. Sorry, we love talking about them. And we hope you enjoy listening to us talk a lot about them like this too cuz this has been this has been cool to dive into something that movies that we both clearly like a lot. It's nice to go to movies like this too. Yes. I'm feeling a bit better about Matinee than I did when I watched it. Like I said, I wasn't in the best mood when I watched it, but maybe if I watched it today, now, I'll get that feeling back again. Because I really think it, it does bring that about in people. And I think that's why it's, it's so beloved by a lot of people. And it really should be. It is one of Dante's best. It's it's top tier Dante for sure. Absolutely. Um, it's a little bit more um, serious in some ways, but it still has plenty of that humor and warmth and heart that he oh, yeah. really brings to just about everything. There's very little. I mean, even the howling has scenes like that in it that are that are just sort of warm and uh, charming and fun as well. Good movies, Brian. Good love movies. Those. I loved Definitely. putting those together. They work together so much better than I thought they would when we first said that. Said that those were our picks. You know. Yeah. I love when that happens. That seems to happen a lot with us. We're it good does. at this. That's amazing. Okay, so we're going to do a couple of recommendations. You've been sort of teasing your recommendation and dying to know what it is. 
Uh, my recommendation is a book, actually, that this is where I actually found out about Targets for the first time was from this book. Um, it's a nonfiction book about horror movies. Um, I reviewed it from my blog. I looked it up in 2011. So I think that's when it came out. So it's 10 years old, but it's still it's still really relevant. It's by Jason Zinneman. It's called Shock Value. I love that book. Yeah. I just bought it. Yeah, that's that's a terrific book. Highly recommend that one. Yeah, this is where I first heard about Targets, and that's what really made me want to watch it. And I just love that Targets and the book are basically, he's basically telling the story of like what Targets is telling, like in this book. So Mm -hmm. it's it's really amazing. The um, kind of the subtitle of the book is Shock Value, How a Few Eccentric Outsiders Gave Us Nightmares, Conquered Horror, Conquered Hollywood, and Gave Us and Invented Modern Horror. And it's, it's just a really, really interesting book that kind of looks into the basically what Targets is about, like when um, horror was changing mm-hmm. from big bug movies and gothic horror into the more real life horrors with stuff like Texas Chainsaw and Rosemary's Baby, Last House. He spends and a lot he, of time. I remember him talking about Last House a lot. Yeah. At, at that as just being sort of this major flashpoint and more of one than we even think of today. Yes. Because, I mean, Nightmare and Scream sort of get rightly, you know, named as movies that uh, that really changed horror because of Wes Craven. But uh, frankly, Last House was maybe even more so in some ways. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he goes through, like, pretty much all of the major... Um like indie films from the from the 70s he starts with rosemary's baby i think goes all the way up to alien mm-hmm. and it's just as i remember i haven't read it obviously in 10 years but i just remember it being like as a new horror fan or even as someone who's thinks they know everything about you know certain movies he's just it's so well researched and he has great insights of his own and mm-hmm. analyses about these movies and how they shaped the genre and how they changed things around and their just their importance um, for the genre so definitely yeah. definitely recommend this book yeah it's great i think i probably read it about the same time to be honest with you it's uh yeah it's terrific i wholeheartedly you know i endorse that one too yes that's sh- that's shock value by jason cinnamon excellent now it makes my recommendation sound boring okay which is <laughs> fine um mine is actually um related to targets as well um i watched finally the movie that Peter Bogdanovich and Boris Karloff are watching in that movie, which is uh, The Criminal Code from 1930, directed by Howard Hawks, as is mentioned in Targets. And this really was Boris Karloff's first important role. He had made something like 60 movies before this, and this is a year before Frankenstein. I still can't Uh, believe that. Really? He made 60 movies? It's it's incredible. Before that? You know, wow. he he was and he had been on the stage before that. He was 44 years old when he made Frankenstein. He was known as a horror actor, of course, because, you know, those later films um, were the ones that made his made his name. But boy, he's he was working for a long time, just um, making his making his bones, I guess, so to yeah. speak, for a very long time before he was discovered and suddenly became a quote overnight sensation uh (laughs) so it's good it's really good i i like the movie a lot um like i said just saw it for the first time this morning it was just released i think by indicator uh, on blu-ray but i actually got it in a tcm pack of boris karloff crime films so it was like three movies that he was in, but he doesn't star in any of them, but he plays an important role. And the role he plays in this, uh, as 
I think it's Galloway is his character's name. And what you see in the movie in Targets is just like a little bit of that. It's an it's an important scene, but it doesn't give too much away. Michelle commented that he kind of looks like he's playing Lurch. Uh, in that, <laughs> he he plays sort of the the uh, the valet, I guess is what they call him, uh, for the warden. So he delivers food and things like that for the warden. He's got a really interesting role in this as this guy who he was in prison. Then he went out on parole. He got let out on parole. This was during prohibition. So he went out to a speakeasy and he had a beer and someone saw him there and ratted him out and it sent him back to prison for 12 more years for the rest of his sentence. And so now he's like, I'm going to take revenge on that guy. I've gotten, he keeps on saying, I've got an appointment with that guy and he's here. And we find out who he is by the end of the movie. But he's not really the main character. It's sort of a subplot <laughs> of what's the main thing is, you know, Walter Houston and, and his whole role as this former DA who sent who is now the warden of this prison, you know, on the who has put a lot of these guys away. <laughs> you know, so it's uh, it's a wild movie. It's uh, there are a lot of movies from this era that are really tough on the prison system. And this is one of them. It's quite good. So um, if you like, especially if you like older films, if you're in, if you like Targets and you're interested in Boris Karloff and knowing more about that particular scene, this is a great movie to watch. So yeah, I, I'd say just uh, check it out. I liked it a lot. I definitely wanted to watch it after watching Targets and just seeing those little clips of the movie. So I'm going to have to look that one up where I can find it. So what's our next episode going to be, Brian? It's kind of your thing, so you got to intro it. This one is my thing. So we have decided, this was an idea we came up with early on for ideas for for subjects, and I call Mm -hmm. it major movies. Okay, so movies that are about what each of us majored in in college. (laughs) So, Which sounds kind of silly, but... It sounds sounds dumb, but I think the movies that we picked are pretty oh, yeah. pretty good. Um, Very far from dumb. <laughs> yeah, so we actually changed uh, my pick uh, last minute here, but I think it's the right choice. But I think so. So I majored in music education. I am, in fact, a music teacher. I was going to pick a harsher movie, <laughs> um, but I really, you know, it doesn't really have relate that much to my experience as in college or, you know, what I really do for a living. So I've switched it to uh, Wes Craven's Music of the Heart (laughs) from 1999. Okay, and by the way, before before you scoff at me, you need to watch this movie and ignore the title, okay? Because I think the title of this movie is awful. I think this mo- <laughs> the title just turns people off because it makes it sound like it's so saccharine and you're going to get tooth decay just from watching this movie. And <laughs> the fact is, the movie does a lot to try to avoid that. Granted, it's a lot of it. Some of it's still there just because the nature of the subject matter. But I think this movie is actually, of all the films I've seen about a music teacher, besides Whiplash... Um, this is one that is, uh, Whiplash is, is dark. Okay. That's, that's a music teacher that I'm nothing like. Uh, that's a different kind of story. This is like a real actual. You did yell at your students this week. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I, but I yell at them more like Meryl Streep does in Music of the Heart. Okay. Not even like that, to be honest. But to me, Meryl Streep's portrayal of the music teacher in this movie is the most like a real music teacher that I've ever seen. More so than something like uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, which I also like. But I think this one is more authentic to 
the experience of especially a, an itinerant teacher, one that goes from school to school, which I have been. So um, that's why I decided I really think this is the one that I wanted to do is music is. of the heart. Um, so <laughs> I could tell like you had a lot more connection and feelings for this one than uh, even though our original pairing was, I thought, pretty fucking good and it would have been so much fun to talk about those together it's a good pairing but the, the point of the show is what's really uh what's really important to you it really speaks to you and i it sounds like yeah. this one does i'm excited to watch this again i hearing your like i'm gonna bring for it I and i'm bringing it the original it... movie back for something else i'm bringing yes. i we're still gonna talk about that movie because i <laughs> love that movie yes but we're we're just gonna save it for for another time yeah i haven't seen music of the heart since it came out and i i, I kind of probably had the same feelings that, that you were talking about that's because i don't remember any of it really and yeah. probably had those feelings that that's what it was it was something like a little sweet and predictable in all, in all honesty and, it, and sure it is kind of predictable too but at the same time i i revisited it um about a year ago when i watched through west craven's catalog and my god it moved me so much more than I expected it to because I remembered it as being incredibly saccharine as well mm -hmm. and it just didn't come across to me that way on this viewing anyway I, I wrote a piece on F that's on F this movie about it if you yeah. want to go in and look at it anybody ahead of time you you can see some of my thoughts on it um, and my pick is something we've already talked about several times that we both just absolutely love so much from 2003 i'm picking richard linklater's school of rock i have the poster of this movie uh i am a massive fan i'm gonna tell you for me this is my pick but it's kind of, these are kind of both more like both your picks because this one is yeah. kind of new to me but you absolutely love this and i love it too but yeah this double feature is gonna be me just like ugly crying through <laughs> through two movies um because they really touch me um and i'll talk a little bit about my experiences you know what my uh, music teaching sort of journey has been a little bit uh, but without getting too much in the weeds of it but that's i think why these movies mean so much yeah. to me <laughs> You know, it's because they they uh, relate to what I experience on a daily basis now in various ways. So, okay, are we done? I think we are. I think that was that was a marathon. <laughs> that was a long one. Um, it wasn't supposed to be that long, but who cares? It really wasn't, and it is literally almost as long. This recording has gone almost as long as our Magnolia episode. How is, is that possible? Crazy. <laughs> How is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, well. Anyway, we hope you all enjoyed this episode anyway. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, if you want to uh, follow us online, you can find me on Twitter at Michelle in Agen. And I'm at Brian D. Kuiper. And the show is at Movie Life Pod. So please follow us there. Interact with us. Tell us what you think about the movies. Tell us about some of your favorite movies. Whatever. Say hey. We love it all. And uh, if whatever you're listening to your podcast, please give us uh, one of those little rates and reviews. Five stars, preferably. I mean, I'm just saying. If you want to give one, that's whatever. We won't hate you. Well, we might it'll a little just hurt bit. Our, it'll, just hurt our, it'll just hurt our feelings a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> um, 
Thank you, everyone who has given us a rate and review. We really greatly appreciate it, and it does help a lot. Thanks for everyone who's sort of interacted with us on Twitter and sort of given us the shout-outs and the quote tweets. and the. We've gotten some really nice feedback, and we really appreciate all of it so much. So much appreciated to you all, and we will see you later. Bye.